Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. This is Simon Sweetman and this is episode 44. This is me talking to Ian Jorgensen or Ian Jorgensen, and, but actually really he's known to everyone as Blink. Um, he started off as a photographer uh, and uh, from there he the, the Blink nickname became part of a brand which extended over to the brand Alohum. Um, so he's been he's been and continues to be a, um, a artist manager, a, a, a concert promoter, a tour organizer, um, all these sorts of things related to music. And then um, now he's actually tutoring a music course at university at Massey. And um, he used to own a bar, um, which became quite quite a quite a neat establishment, which which which. Uh, you know, um, changed the rules a little bit. He got people uh, actively announcing when they were going to play, organising showtimes, and he tried to make it more about the music than about the grog that was being sold. A, a big problem we sort of have in New Zealand culture is that we create these places where everyone wants to go and have a drink and the music is secondary. Um, so he's a published author as well. Uh, he's written books and essays about his musical pursuits, and currently he's involved with... Um, this incredible device, this portable synth and sampler, um, he's involved with sort of taking that to market and 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 um, getting that out and about. So um, we had, a, I mean, we've I've known Blink for years. I've sort of bumped into him, uh, been involved with some of his projects when he first started a magazine. I did a little bit of writing for him. Um, we've. Uh, yeah, we, we know each other fairly well, but uh, still, this was the first time that I've sat down with him and had a, a huge talk about everything that he's done, and it really is a lot, and he's a very uh, passionate uh, guy, and he's a very articulate man, so um, I hope you'll enjoy this. This is him sort of just me trying to guide him through everything that he's done, or nearly everything across pretty much the last 20 years and it's there's a lot of stuff in here um i think this is there's a lot of good advice for young musicians and people interested in music um so i hope you like this one this is me talking to blink as far as you two, oh, you, you, you two records go it's, you know. it's to me it's the only one that i ever feel like yeah, listening yeah, yeah. to that is the best u2 album yeah. for me yeah. um, and i was a fan right up until I don't know what Zeropa. You know, I, I went to yeah, the yeah, TV yeah. tour. I think yeah. after that, I started to dip. I, I was, I was definitely, I, I bought Upton Baby. And I was yeah, definitely, definitely a fan of that record, and yeah. I feel I really liked Numb mm. of Zeropa, and mm. I liked a couple of the tracks. Mm. Uh, was it was Disco the one after Zeropa? Disco Tech, yeah, yeah, Pop. Yeah, yeah, Pop's where they started to lose me actually. It, there was like there was some four, good songs. There, yeah, there was four or five songs I didn't mind on that, mm. but after that. I think because mm. um, like was was it there was a break there was quite a long gap eh? it was yeah. like it was actually that elevation would have been like the first single I think yeah following that or or beautiful day maybe yeah I think it was a standalone single and then there was yeah, that, yeah. that album that all that you can't leave behind or whatever yeah, it was yeah, quite a right. yeah Which, that was the sort of them coming back to yeah. the classic sound and that that I was sort of done with them by then yeah yeah but totally. but uh, you know um, unforgettable fire mm. you can listen to it. Uh, as, as I think I do these days too as an Eno album mm. or like in the context of I mean I, you know I know he did other work with them since but yeah. that one to me sticks out as like I listened to that with my bright Eno ears on like yeah. just, just wanting to get oh. what he brought to it I mean did you ever hear about that project I did called Bono so like that that was like my first live thing and there's, no. there's like YouTube video of it and there's recordings of it so the whole point of that was mm. to remix live U2 songs but remove Bono's voice right because it's like in instrumentally, yeah. like 
the band is amazing and it's yeah. like sonically so many of those songs sound incredible mm-hmm. and it's just like but for me the only thing that's really irritating is some of his lyrics yeah and just like his well, like so his over emotion it's got to the point that his personality is oh, yeah, to yeah. people too so exactly. they, they hear that through his singing right like yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they hear that in his lyrics you know he's like I, I wrote a thing about how he's the it's the Bears Wally of rock music documentaries, you know? You watch any documentary about an artistic person, next thing that, that prick comes up with a, you know, a pointless little soundbite, <laughs> you know? And, and it's, it's funny because you try to not let someone's personality exactly. affect your appreciation of music, but it, yeah. just, it just happens, you Yeah, know? of course it does. Um, but, you know, for me, I one of my, my pet peeves with any music is... Uh, and I guess it's mainly male singers because I don't find this with female singers but people who are overly emotive when the music is already emotive and it's just like the emotion is there it's like the the musicians have already created that emotion for you you don't have to put extra emphasis in your voice to add extra emotion because mm. then it becomes insincere and it's like and, and I feel it's almost like disrespectful of the vocalist who's like going oh the musicians aren't already making this emotive enough I need mm. to then go oh, oh, and you're like mm. Yeah, you know, so and I find that's what Bono does to me. He's just like, he's trying to color the music, which has already got plenty of color. And I'm yeah. like going, it's beautiful. It sounds amazing. The production's outstanding. Yeah. You just yeah. you do your job, and you let everyone else do their job. Yeah. And it'll be much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So you what you you live re- got pe- various people to live remix. No, no, I, I, I did, you it. did it. So I just choose songs on the fly. So I'd like go into a set and I'd just go, okay, what are some songs that sound really beautiful yeah um and then i just like start looping and like sample elements of those tracks and i just start building up these new songs i add heaps of layers of like reverb and delay onto like yeah you know like you take like um you know some of the tracks of say the second half of um uh joshua tree mm. you know which the is one like, side of it that's worth listening to now, yeah, right? yeah, because yeah. the for me as good an album as that is um i don't you know i don't ever really want to hear um Still haven't found what I'm looking for. No, no, exactly. And streets have no name. Exactly. With or without you, is, no. is okay sometimes, even though that's overplayed too. Exactly. But the thing is, but that just that baseline with or without you. Uh, so I mean, like that's the thing is, so yeah, I, I, yeah. I would I would loop that opening phrase yeah. just over and over and over, and just like start cutting up like yeah, things yeah. into it. And I mean, it's a beautiful. But Red Hills, Bloody Tail, what a great song. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Side to it, you know, much as I love um, Unforgettable Fire, I, I, side I reckon side to a Joshua Tree with. With or without you on it as well would make a killer EP. Yeah, it's funny, mate. We're so <laughs> same. I, I, I just can't listen to that, that stuff. Yeah, Except, yeah. I will say, um, I still haven't found what you're looking for. The the intro, mm. um, the intro with lots of delay on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds incredible. So that was that was the first <laughs> tape I ever bought with my own uh, with my own money. Like, and I was quite pleased with that. I was like, that's you know, that's reasonable that's a very good taste basis. you know like for, yeah. for back then yeah. at the time when it came out I mean I bought Rick Astley shortly afterwards it's probably not quite as cool um, but you know I think MC Hammer You Can't Touch This was the first cassette I went and bought that and Beef of U2's Love Shack yeah at the same time I'd, I'd had heaps of hand-me-downs from my brother at that point yeah so I had every Billy Joel um, album um, that he'd released until yeah. that point but when I first started finally buying stuff and so, the, the Acting Baby actually funny was one of my right. first cassette purchases yeah yeah when yeah. was that? Was that like 92? Uh, 91, I think. 91, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so um, I, I, I first met you as a photographer. Yeah. And which I guess you still are, and, and, and you know, you don't lose that. You, you still are yeah. in some capacity. I mean, I've seen you at gigs over the years, you know, re- relatively recently. You pull the camera out and take a shot there. Um, but you were, a, <coughs> you were a music photographer as a hobby mm. slash 
occupation. Yeah, I mean, I guess I never really made money from it. I mean, no. even even back in the day when I was pretty much the only photographer, I mean, there, mm. were, there were just half a dozen of us who were taking photos back mm. then because this was pre-digital and, the, mm. you know, it had been easily accessible. So, you know, I mean, I effectively worked for all the biggest bands in the country, and this was like pre the New Zealand explosion. So yeah. it's like, you know, I was working for, you know, She Heard and mm. I guess uh, Stereogram and the Datsun. So I guess actually the, the bands at the first wave... Well, I mean, mm. it wouldn't be the first wave, but, you know, like, certainly yeah, an yeah, early yeah. wave of that yeah. over- overseas success. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, this thing is, you know, I mean, my, my photos are on the, ca- on the cover of the Datsun's, you know, yeah. first block record. But the thing is, you know, I still wasn't making anything, you know. I'd a shoot, I'd charge, like, 500 bucks. Sure. So it's like... But you... Bit by bit, you made your name out of that, arguably. Like, yeah. You know, like, yeah. that's where you... So, um, I mean, you know, we, we, we sort of prattled on about you two and tapes there, but, I, like, music was obviously what I want to get to was music was obviously something that you were passionate about from I mean, an early age. That, that's, that's how I ended up photographing it. You know I mean? Right. I, I, um, I, I, my brother and me built a dark room in our laundry when I was around 13. And I guess I joined a band at school. I mean, all I used to do was just like go to library, borrow records. Um, I didn't really, I tried to learn guitar, just wasn't good at it started playing harmonica and then i really wanted to be in a band so i joined this band um and i was singing playing harmonica with them and then i just sort of realized i i'd just been taking photos the classic thing you do when you're like a kid with like no social um abilities and you just start taking photos of flowers and like mm. letterboxes around your neighborhood um but when the band when i joined this band i was like i have an interesting subject to photograph you know mm. and that then they became my muse i suppose as a photographer um and i, I also i also and that kind of built my confidence up and i and then i then started getting into fashion photography as well but it mm. was really the fashion photography actually ended up being the job and the music photography ended up being the, the hobby kind of, the love yeah yeah yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, yeah. so it just basically for, don't want to pay for the other <laughs> totally for years yeah. fashion yeah. photography just subsidized the other you know yeah yeah and, and so so that would have been about around when I met you and I think like when I first met you we went off and did that crazy story um, chasing boy races, <laughs> chasing boy races yeah, yeah, around yeah. town um, yeah. through through a connection of yours and and uh, and I wrote you know text for, and somewhere I mean that story actually got published yeah. um, was, it, was it Lemon? Yes Lemon I think magazine? it was yeah yeah, 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 right. yeah it was it was Lemon magazine and, yeah. and, and I've, I've got the text for that story somewhere and um, yeah, but that, I think that's probably when I met you, and then and I remember being sort of blown away by these black and white photographs of of Shehad particularly, mm-hmm. and a few other things. Um, and then, so how soon after that do you start? Like next thing you you start, uh, um, what's the next thing? A low hub becomes a, well, a magazine and a label and stuff. I mean, sorry, it's those Shehad photos that you mentioned were probably mm. actually the catalyst for my next thing. So I had um, it was the. Were they Shehad or Pacifier at the time? Have you feeling that? They might have switched to Pacifier, Yeah, actually. yeah. So they came back and they did a series I just, of I shows. I just won't acknowledge that. But, you know, myself, <laughs> exactly. personally. But, but yeah, I think um, they had... They, they, they did a series of shows at the Parthenon. Was it the Parthenon or James Gann? Uh, who, who knows? Again, my, my I historical. won't acknowledge it. It's the, <laughs> yeah, it's the James Gann. <laughs> I'm not doing it's definitely not the jam. It's no, not the jam. No, I'm not doing um, these jam. Um, they change things. <laughs> right, so she had played at the James Cab mm. sometime, yeah, in the early thousands. And I, I went along and I, I had the end of a roll of colour film in my camera. So I just snapped off like maybe whatever, 10 shots to finish that roll. And then I shot three rolls of black and white. And so I had all these great black and white shots and then just like a couple of colour shots. And I even them through to um, Murray Kamek who was editing Rip It Up at the time and you know 
and he just wanted to use all the color photos, you know. Mm. And I was like, dude, the black and white shots are amazing. So I had to like convince him to use the black and white shots, which he liked. But the argument was that they're paying for color paper. They want to use yeah, color yeah. photographs. Yeah. And I was like, for me, that didn't make sense. I was like, going, oh, no, you use the best artistic images. You don't just use yeah, yeah. color because you're, you're paid you're CMYK. Paying. Yeah, it's yeah. like, so that and that and I, I'd been working for Tearaway and Rip It Up and you know Real Groove and all those magazines for a while and I was like oh man no, I, I, that's that's it I gotta start my own thing I don't care if it looks crap and it's Xeroxed or whatever um, so now yeah you, so, so the, the first the first issue was those black and white photos of the She Had show which Rip It Up didn't publish including on the cover I mean mm. the very first cover of Alo Hum was of John Toogood mm. which is funny because I, I guess people had this idea of Alo Hum being like a real underground magazine it's yeah. like she had one of her first cover yeah. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. the biggest band in the country yeah yeah <laughs> um, so so it's a magazine for quite a while before it's really anything else yeah you I know mean, like the CD th- element starts to come in totally I mean it was I mean you know I guess you know I guess it was a vanity project initially it was just like me taking so many photos not having an outlet to publish them and just wanting people to see them because what do you um, you know what do you get for putting a photo or two and rip it up in real group back then oh, it's chump change yeah, right yeah, yeah, like, totally. it would have been yeah. like 50 bucks maybe yeah. you know yeah, yeah. Um, that's the thing is that you know yeah. <sighs> paid three months later so you yeah, can't yeah. survive on it it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just a token gesture towards a hobby exactly so you've got you've got the you know other people have a day job of whatever kind that might be not linked to it at all and you've got your fashion photography that's propping you up exactly yeah yeah, yeah. I mean um, Tearaway were the only magazine that actually paid me a reasonable rate so they were you know so every year for Big Day Out I would shoot it for Tearaway because they were actually able to pay me you know none of the other magazines could pay you maybe mm. they'd give you film costs of that mm. um, so yeah I mean so the magazine started off as really I mean it, it, it had nothing really to do with the underground or it was just simply like these are bands I like these are photos I take and it's just simply to be that my tastes erred towards generally bands that weren't known so um, as, the, as the magazine grew on and, I, and then I started to realise I was like going why should I bother wasting time talking about these bands that already get talked about all the time yeah, I as well that's my point and, of difference yeah. like so yeah and there were so many bands that weren't being talked about so I just thought oh I may as well focus on talking about these bands and then when I realised that, oh, I'm talking about all these bands, people can't hear these bands because they don't have the money to tour and they, they don't have songs on the radio, they don't have videos on TV. So, and it, someone's looking at a magazine and even though my photos, well, you know, I was happy with my, I, I thought they were good and they showed what the band was like, they didn't really do it. So mm. I thought, oh, I have to get the music out there. And so that was the reason for the CD. Yeah. And then, so ev- everything was just to mix. So the CD had to happen so you could hear the music. But then I was like, how can I actually afford the cost of a CD? And I can't afford, I don't know how to sell advertising. I don't have the money to turn to a magazine. But I said, but I do know how to tour a band and have that break even. So if I can tour a band and have that break even, then that will promote the magazine because people will hear about it that way. Mm-hmm. And so I just started trying to formulate this way that that would all work. And, and, um, and what you just. So I'm trying to think back to it because I mean I used to, uh, well, contribute to some of those magazines a little mm. bit too, but also read them. But I'm thinking like, did you just slowly get writers on board? Like slowly get a bit and think, well, actually this would be good with a bit of text, and yeah, then you yeah, probably yeah. probably get a few people contacting you and saying, hey, can I be involved in this? Because people are hobbyist writers, just like 
you're sending your photos out there and trying to get them published. People are doing the same with their writing. I mean, it would be very different for me to do today. Yeah. Because even though there's certainly more people online, everything's more fragmented, so it's harder tracking down people mm. who are actually into things. So mm. basically, I don't think it would have happened without NewZealandMusic.com. Like, I really mm-hmm. think, you know, that was the catalyst and the starting point for a lot of projects back then. And, you know, all I needed to do was, like, going, oh, I'm looking for some people to write about music. Yeah. And just one forum, and then just all these people can comment on it, you know. Mm. Whereas if I was to say that these days, like for example, on my Facebook feed, yeah, all these people who are just interested in music that I like, or you know, want to promote their own bands, or you know, like mm. you mm. know, have other kind of, I guess, yeah, NewZealandMusic.com just hit a wider base of people and it hit people who are actually just more interested in writing and music, not specifically pushing their friends band or whatever so mm. it just meant I was able to build up this collection of people who I kind of had a general idea of what they were into and also could write about various things like for example if I knew I needed um, an article like written about some sort of you know like a, a heavily influential uh, you know randomly obscure band but I wanted a really like you know a discography with like you know every single release they mentioned and like rarities and b-sides and that sort of thing if I wanted the real geek article I knew that like you know Stevie K was the guy to go to because mm-hmm. he would just always go deep in things you know but I also knew if I wanted an article with like someone's own personality injected into it you know for example like maybe Duncan Grieve mm-hmm whenever he wrote stories it would become a really kind of personal narrative so and I, I would try to break up um, each of those articles with different mm. different types of writing I mean, it, was, it was a really epic thing to do and I don't I don't even know how I do it I can't work out how I had the time mm. to edit design you know produce and curate the CD and organize the tours mm. and you know do all that every month it was just like I don't I don't I don't get it I don't either and I'm trying <laughs> to think I, th- I think I wrote three pieces for Alohan and well, I only remember doing three, and they were all really cool interviews. Like, you oh, put me in touch with um, Jeff from Jacob for the first time, oh, cool. and I wrote a piece about Jacob, and, uh, you know, and I was into them, but that was pretty early in their, in their sort of trajectory. And I did a piece um, on Luke Buddha, his first solo album, yeah. and, um, and that was cool. And uh, I, think, I think for you, I also did a... F- uh, interview with Mark Kozilek when oh, he was coming out yeah course. so yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Which, oh my god that, yeah. that that album that Tiny Cities album I still thrash that to this yeah. day like, yeah genius man yeah I, I'm not a yeah if, if you've got to talk about good covers it's like that man yeah, goes yeah, at the top yeah. of any list yeah. any conversation uh, he's done hundreds of them too like, yeah yeah you know, exactly. through his various oh, guys and the, so. and the, the absolute master of it yeah um yeah, I mean, I, and I guess that shows, you know, I really did work hard on placing people with the right people. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Still, still today, if I had to organise interviews for those artists, you'd be the person that I would ask to go and talk to those artists. Yeah, yeah, it's funny that. That's, that's, that's what I was thinking. Like, I've, those are, that's my first connection with all three of those as, as artists to interview. Um, I've never talked about Kozilek again. I'd probably be too frightened to now, too, by the way. But I'm, you know, really into his music. And but the other two, I've interviewed again, you know, and and, and in both cases, gotten to know them, and which doesn't always happen, and is always for the best, you know, for me and all of that. But yeah, like I've stayed with their music and and and, and kind of well, big fans of their, you know, of their music and championed it. So yeah, so so you sort of had this ability to put the right people with the right people 
I did. I mean, I I spent a lot of time on it. You yeah. Know, I, I would agonise over it greatly because you know, because people were doing everything for free. You know, it's including mm. myself. You mm. know, we're all working on it for mm. nothing, and it's like I didn't. So want you to, want to fucking enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I, there was no point in me placing people and 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 get, or getting a bad result from it. Yeah. And you know, I was adamant that the writing wasn't just like you know, oh, we're working on a new record. We're trying to get more of a live mm. sound. You know, it's like this is our favourite record to date. Yeah, you know, yeah, just yeah. The, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I wouldn't work with writers who would deliver that material. Yeah, right? yeah. And um, sometimes I had to kind of brief people and explain. I said, look, you know, I'd rather you wrote about yourself for the entire piece and just yeah. your experience of the music than you talk about what they're doing and regurgitate some bio. You know, yeah, so yeah. I was just so not interested in that. Um, it was fun. I mean, I'm, I'm glad it definitely got to the point with the magazine and the magazine was getting to the point where it was doing okay but I just like I, I just had no interest in organising that writing anymore I mean the only yeah. thing that sticks out as being remotely similar as a as a kind of model would be the early loop and the content mm. was different like yeah. the subject matter is different the way you probably got about it but that's sort of what that's sort of how Loop got going was the magazine yeah totally I mean and then it's funny even, even though certainly Loop was in my yeah um, in my in my field now I mean you know actually our, our uh, my friend Brett who we did the Boy Racer story yeah, at that yeah. time he worked very closely with Luke right um, but it was actually Specs magazine in Germany that was for me more the, a model for you yeah yeah it was like my friend uh-huh. uh, when the first band I started managing and this was in 2001 so the, probably the closest friend of that band moved to Germany around 2002 and then he started sending us back um, sp- he'd make these compilations like every three or four months and send them back of all his favourite songs from Spix compilations mm. and and, that, and then he'd send the occasional Spix issue as well and that was what actually really interested me going into that whole idea of the artists in the magazine are the ones on the CD and also it's, and it's artists you haven't heard of mm. and it's like you know it's and it's interesting music you know and I mean um you know, and until that, I, I mean, you know, the classic Rip It Up, when Rip It Up went from, I think, a free magazine to their first, like, $2 issue, and they had that, like, three-track mm-hmm. CD on there yeah, with, like, yeah. with, like morphine, morphine yeah. and, like, who are the other tracks on there? It's a classic, man. Yeah. When, I, when, when I run into people and, like, I bring up, like, Boina Boina, I think, was the track yeah, on there. You drop yeah. that somewhere, everyone's yeah. like, Rip It Up, free CD. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, that's still, yeah, a good, yeah. still a good track. Oh, it's and, a, it's a great, great track. album and a good yeah. band, but you're right, I remember it from that. That was my yeah. introduction oh, to that, yeah. absolutely. I, I, that has come up so many times I, I would love to know how many people in New Zealand got that CD because it's yeah. you know, and I mean and that was I mean I the loop CDs weren't you know they were on my radar but so far away I'd never actually listened to one I wasn't yeah. engaged with them but you know definitely a couple of things like that the occasional Rolling Stones CD mm. but it was the Specs ones that were like you know like that was the first time like Cigarettes there was like a track from Cigarettes on their first from their first album on one of those discs yeah and, um, you know I hadn't heard anything like that you know in that was like, I, I just, I don't even know how oh, to yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so, what you mean? I'm not going to try to pronounce yeah, it either, but... Yeah, so yeah. That, when that first album came out, and I was like, man, yeah. what is this? And um, and that got me totally hooked on that, because I hadn't, I hadn't been that, I guess, blown away by anything I'd heard on any other magazines, because like, the music all made sense to me, you know, yeah. even though Point of Point is an awesome track, mm. it's still like other songs, you know, I can still place the context, but that, that really early, early cigarettes, I was just like, man, this is a really... Otherworldly, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And, and so many tracks, so much European yeah. music was coming out on those discs that was mm. just blowing my mind, you know. Yeah. So it, it strikes me that um, how you've gone about things and, and how you've sort of moved from one project to the next 
by kind of integrating the projects, never letting one go completely, just morphing it into, you know, the photo work becomes a magazine, the magazine becomes a way to distribute CDs and promote gigs, promoting gigs becomes the way to... Festivals. Well, yeah, that, yeah, but also yeah. still a link back to photography work and rah, rah, rah. Opening a venue, which we'll get into, becomes a way of touring bands and hosting bands and, and promoting music. Um, it's a, it seems like a very non-New Zealand thing to do. It seems like a very American model, if there is a model for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's just, I always try to not think about money. So if, if ever a project gets to the point... You've that it the ma- right industry. <laughs> yeah. yeah you know. So, I mean, that's things. I, I, I just get bored of things, and I don't look at Aloham as any one thing, mm. and I think it's just simply, it's the name of whatever project I currently yeah, so be doing. Like yeah, so yeah. it's, yeah, yeah. it's like your band, though. Yeah, yeah. But it's like your band. And I'm putting out a totally different album every three years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, I mean, that, and that, that was the funny thing, I guess, with Camp, which I guess we're probably not talking about, you know, I... It got to the point where I just I'd, I'd done it. You know, I, I'd gone way past the point of mm. having lost my interest. And there's, you know, with with the bar, which I guess we'll talk to, but yeah, I um I have to finish things. I, yeah, I, I, I get I get bored. And then that becomes a new outlet for you. It seems to be that the last few years, uh, when you are finishing something up, you've you've put out these books that kind of mm. document it, these es- or essays, you know, yeah, in, yeah. In, in book and internet form, and they sort of are your your documentation of the process or at least the ending of the process yeah i mean I, yeah i mean i get the, the first time i did that was when i stopped touring around new zealand with bands and i put out this book called local knowledge mm. and um it was just simply because i felt that yeah by me simply stopping um you know what was to be learnt from that process for other people you know that i met you know i've always been about openly sharing knowledge i just don't think that there's anything to be gained from holding back on information and like, especially in new zealand it's like what am i going to do like sell someone touring tips for like a hundred bucks yeah, yeah. i mean like i may yeah. as well just put the advice out there so um that was my first foray into that and and i and it, and it just it, it felt good like a lot of people were always were emailing me constantly just like thanking me for like a little tip they got in that book and how it made their touring easier um, and then once I started touring bands internationally, so again, this was a thing of just like, you know, I'd toured 70 bands around New Zealand and it's like, you know, even though I never toured a band in the Milford Sound or, you know, maybe never taken out anyone to Cape Ranger or Stewart Island, yeah. I'd certainly... Taken them to places yeah. that they wouldn't have gone otherwise <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I'd yeah. seen this country yeah. a fair few times and I was starting to go like, oh, you know, I need, mm. I need some new places to explore. So what's the motivation to, well, let's, let's rewind and go... Yeah. What makes you think it's a worthwhile thing to do to tour bands? It comes from a love of music, obviously. That's that's the obvious thing to say. And it, but but what makes you think this is a good thing to do, and and I can do this? I mean, I, I guess it was just a combination of things I loved. I love I loved traveling. I loved being around people, especially who you know I was inspired by and excited by. I loved music. I just love seeing. I you know. One of my favourite things in the world is seeing bands get better night after night and hearing the same songs and hearing them evolve and hearing them change and then one night this song just blows your mind and the next day for some reason it just didn't connect or, you know, especially, you know, and that's why I've always worked with bands who won't just do the same show every night you know who do have that you know, my favourite bands the ones I've uh, certainly have been touring recently are bands who add a lot of improv into their sets so mm-hmm. in that you know um, because I just started realising after a while that those were one of the tours I really enjoyed yeah. sorry 
Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, I guess touring, I, I, I just had to do it. There was, once I'd done it, my, my very first, the very, very first tour I went on, um, I think it would have been maybe 2001, was with that first band I started managing, Ejector. And it was only a three-day tour, you know, we just went to, I think, Palmerston North, Napier, and Auckland. But it was the greatest time I had had. It was just incredible, just like laughing with friends the whole time, you know. What did they like, end up doing? What did they come to? Did anyone from that band yeah, do well, I mean, other things? Yeah, I mean, Nick, Nick Brinkman, who is the main songwriter, is still doing tons of projects this day. So he's currently doing this thing called the Ghost Writers Collective, where he teams up with a lot of musicians from here and overseas. Mm. And uh, he just released this album as Junica a while ago. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And he's just finished a new album with uh, Julia Parr, who was in Black City Lights, yep. and they're called Physical. And I think their first single comes out uh, early next year on, mm. a, on, a, on a good label. So I'm... Um, I mean, he's. I mean, and he was obviously. So he was over the Atlantic, who I worked yeah, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for a long time, including yeah. touring with him overseas. So I mean, our, our relationship's been close. Since, yeah, yeah. Since then, for, for over fifteen years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah well. Um, and he was actually he. So he designed the very first cover of a low hum as well. Right. So, um, but that was the extent of his work. It was originally going to be a project between me and him because yeah. his. So I started managing them when they were, when they were sixteen, um, and then a song of theirs. Um, got nominated for a Beanie Award, I think, when they were in seventh form, when they were 17, and then his seventh form uh, project, which is what, year 13 for the yeah. for the youngins these days, uh, was designing a magazine called Segment, and so his he was taking photographs of me and mocking me up as the cover artist of this magazine that he was right. doing for his design thing, so yeah. that got us talking about magazines, and we'd go in, like, into shops and we'd look at magazine design, and that kind of was another, at the same time, I'd been wondering this magazine, and then we were all just talking about magazines all day, um, and that was, that was kind of how that came together. Um, and I mean, I think I actually, the, the, the first day at the copy center, I'm pretty sure Nick was there with a few other the members from Ejector and we just sat there like pulling all the sheets out and folding yeah. them and stapling them and all of that. So you do a few tours where it's bands you like. Um, how long does it take before people start coming to you and going, you know, word, word spreads around that these tours are successful or whatever level or you know people feel they're treated well or that it's gone well and eventually at some point people start coming to you right as much as you seek them out I, 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 I can't remember a time anyone came to me and asked me to, to tour them I think people knew that I, I mean so the very 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 last New Zealand tour I did kind of I mean so I, I'd done all the Aloham tours mm. and then, you know, Jack, uh, Jack Daniels came on as a sponsor and I announced that I was stopping doing them because I just had enough. And then, so they came back and emailed back the next day and basically offered me an amount of money that was just like, oh, I'll finally actually make money for touring bands after yeah. doing it for no money all these years. Yeah. And I was like, okay, look, I'll do a couple more tours for you. So I did. So the kind of deal with them was that I it was like a, a contract for three tours and it was like, okay, I'll do the first one and it will be bands I, I like that are my friends and it'll mm. be a tour that's exactly how I want to be. We, we, but it, cause they want to build a new brand called the JD Set. So I said the first tour would be a JD Set, a low hum kind of co-thing. And I said the next one they could curate and I would go to venues that they wanted and they could have a lot of say in it because they were paying me enough money that I would listen to them. So effectively I just became a tour manager. I was yeah. no longer a curator. Um, and so that was this tour that they wanted they, they looked at the New, the New Zealand indie scene back then and they saw the Tuts and Motorcade as being like for them 
Yeah. They they saw those bands as being successful because they saw oh a band's getting played on the TV and getting on the radio, so it's like you know the the mentality of someone who doesn't understand the music scene thinks that that must also translate to the live scene. So, yeah, yeah. And and it doesn't. So so I was just like, okay, if you want to take those bands, that's fine. You know. So I organised this tour, and um, it was a nightmare, and it totally just totally killed my enthusiasm for touring, touring well I was going to say nothing you know. particularly underground about Jack Daniels either is there like. no, no I mean they, they were they were an amazing sponsor I mean they were incredible I mean of all the shows I did where they helped they came to one show my members from Jack Daniels came to one show and they were drunk and yeah. they and I, I hadn't stuck up any banners so I never did anything I didn't really stick up any banners I just didn't make any efforts I didn't even most like 80% of the shows I did the bars weren't even serving Jack Daniels mm. I mean I think but the thing is the amount of money they were giving to me was just such chump change for a company like that that it yeah. really didn't matter lip service of kind like yeah totally I mean, toe in the water exactly see what but, happens yeah but when they came on board with the next round that was when the money was important to them and that so they wanted to have a say but it was just yeah I mean but for me it was also total vindication you know I mean I'd, I'd done this tour a few months beforehand with bands who weren't on the radio no one was talking about them they weren't on TV you know all the shows were packed all the shows sold out it's a huge tour uh, everyone did well out of it. It was an amazing time. And here's this tour with Touch the Motorcade, and it's like all the shows are just like you know a quarter of the capacity. It's like no one's interested in it. The vibe at the shows is totally different. Mm. And um, and so it just really drove home several things to me. It's like no, never ever be a tour manager for money. Never ever tour a band again just because you're being paid. Um, yeah. And that you know I love touring with bands I do whose music I love and yeah. and and also to be careful who the people that you're traveling with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, pro- I'll probably write about that experience one day. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but it definitely just, yeah, it drove home to keep doing what you love and not let money taint it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you keep the, how do you keep yourself afloat though through this? Like what's going on apart from a little bit of JD's money here and there and things like that. What's keeping you afloat? The, I mean, right through those years, I mean, I guess I was shooting fashion to yes, probably around, right. about, around about 2008 to 2009, right. so pretty much all through that touring. And it was really funny because, you know, I mean, I was even like teaching catwalk and like, you know, really bizarre <laughs> things. And, you know, I'd go away on a tour, yeah. be sleeping on floors, be absolutely rough in it. And I remember this one time that the band were going to, I, I dropped all the bands off at San Fran, probably Indigo back then, and they were doing their... Um, sound checks and I had to run across the road to the model agency <laughs> and give a catwalk lesson yeah, yeah. and I just spent like the last night sleeping on the floor with a whole bunch of dudes and I was just like this is bizarre I have a weird yeah. life I have a very weird life you know <coughs> and um, so in, in f- fashion just you're completely like, subsidised you're like King Henry the Fourth or whatever like <laughs> jumping between those two worlds <laughs> it, it, it was bizarre but the thing is the, the good money I was getting from you know the thing is you know I was, I was making good money you know I'd do one shoot and you know I'd get like 700 bucks so it's like yeah. I, I would just work three or four days a month shooting fashion and then I'd just go on tour for three weeks you know and I mean it, it, it meant I could do that lifestyle mm. Um, mm. yeah wow so what's the next significant leap for a low hum is it touring internationally or is it the start of camp it was the start of festival yeah. actually so which just which just meant was meant to be a party for the end of the tours when I finally yeah. decided that the tours were going to finish so the, the last year of tours was in 2006, um, and then it, pretty much 
maybe June, like I still had like six tours to go, but I was just like, oh, I'm going to have a party. I'm, I'm going to finish this. I can't do this anymore. So I just organized the party and I just said, and that's why I didn't, I didn't announce the lineup. I mean, there were several reasons I didn't announce. Originally, the original idea with the Elohim tours is that they wouldn't actually be told who was playing. Yeah. But so I just didn't have the Secret confidence. Gigs. Yeah. I mean, my, 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 my whole theory was that I like, oh, yeah, this, there's just going to be a great bunch of bands touring every month. You don't know who's going to play. Just come along, get a magazine CD and see some cool bands. But I, but I wore out. Yeah. And, um, but I, so I didn't want to wuss out with the party. I was yeah. like going, this was always the idea. Um, and also because I didn't have time to book the bands because I was touring everybody. And I just figured that it would just come like, you know, by osmosis, the bands would just sort of like end up, you know, drifting in, mm. you know. Um, so, but it was funny. Like back then people got quite offended by the idea that I wasn't going to announce the lineup. Hey, there were a lot of, you know, and I'd get quite a few emails from like particularly... I guess industry people who you know yeah, who, yeah I mean because there they hadn't there wasn't other boutique festivals I mean this, there wasn't like a three that that was a pretty rare thing for New Zealand yeah. and people were interested in going but they were like going I don't want to come unless I know who's playing and I'm like going just look at all the bands I've spent the last three years touring yeah it's, like, it's going to be some combination of <laughs> basically yeah. it's like and the, things that sound like them. Yeah. yeah it's like you know I've I've done enough work to let it know what my tastes are so I yeah I found it weird and. um so I mean, and I I'd, I'd, I'd never wanted to do a festival, you know, and I'd spent I'd spent years like you know, um, dissing festivals and you know talking about how bad festivals were, yeah. and I guess that's because in my mind a festival was only one particular thing. It's like yeah, a festival yeah. had to be that combination of shitty factors, yeah, and I never yeah. actually thought, oh wait up, no festivals anything you want it to be. So all I did was I wrote down a list of everything I hated about music festivals and then tried to fix every single one of those elements. So that was kind of what that experiment was. And, um, and even though I, I lost a bunch of money that first one, um, which I didn't know until we were, I was left the site, I'd completely packed down, everything was done, spent like a couple of days packing down and was leaving. And my partner at the time, we'd had to, I had two different bank accounts I was using, one that was like for the sort of, you know, transactional stuff and one that was for like ticket sales. And I thought the ticket sales were coming into a separate account, but everything had been going and the into the one account. So right. I, 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 some, I, on the way out, I just, instantly dawned on me when she told me that I was like going I just lost something thousand dollars that sucks and I, and I hadn't realized that until that moment and and I, I was so emotional because I'd been up for like mm. you know, four or five nights of course and I, and I, just, I just broke down I was like going I can't believe I've just spent you know all this time doing this project from like you know, for no, for no yeah, for from years. like euphoric elation yeah, type yeah. and to... it, it, everyone was so everyone was so enjoyable and the thing is yeah. for me that that event was the end of years worth of work because I, yeah, re- yeah. I really saw that as being like the finish of like a major stage of and I was like and I, was, I was absolutely devastated and uh, and just wept on the side of the road for ages you know I, I just couldn't believe it and then so I had I had to go then borrow money because so the whole point of it is like I didn't want to be that festival person who then goes and just says oh, I can't pay you yeah. or, you know can you pay me less I, I still wanted to pay everyone what I promised them because it's like that was just my morals and ethics so I had to go borrow money from my, my ex-partner borrowed money from my parents and then I just had to pay, I spent two years paying them back oh, but, yeah. but I also realised I was like but everyone loved it so if I didn't do this again then it's a $15,000 loss because it was all for nothing yeah. but I just I had to look at it like very pragmatically and go no that that's actually if I look at it sensibly that's the cost of building goodwill in a brand it's like, you know, yeah. Yeah. and it's like man and like $15,000 to put on the event that all these people are going away saying that it was the best time of their life it's like that's a small cost to build a brand which has that I guess emotional 
goodwill with people yeah. so I just realised that I was like oh man I have to try and do this again to, to, to pay back everyone <laughs> you know and, and because it was a great time you know so yeah. that's what you do yeah straight away the following year or do you have yeah. a year off um no I go I, I go straight into it I still toured the occasional bands yeah. like um uh, Ian McKay um you know ex yeah. yeah. that um he got a hold of it. it was Jim Rush I think actually I think because um, he contacted when Jim was doing lots yeah. of shows with Matt yeah. Crawley he contacted them about organising a tour but no one really wanted to do a show outside of Auckland but Ian was you know really adamant about and he also just wanted to do all ages shows so it's like basically no promoter in New Zealand wanted to touch that yeah, somebody yeah. wanted to do random small towns and all ages shows <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. basically I, I was the guy yeah 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 so <laughs> I, I, I ended up doing that tour which was absolutely life changing I mean I, I was his very very first tour manager he'd never had anyone tour manager in any band he'd ever been in until that point he or other members in the band had always done the driving, that always yeah. been in control of everything. So it was really it was interesting for him because he, you know, you could you could sense he was really unhappy, kind of giving up control of a lot of circumstances. And we butted heads for like the first two days. Right. It was just absolutely awkward, you know. I mean, he, he he had. I mean, I sound like I cry all the time in this, but like you know, he had me in tears after one show. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was like brutal, you know. But then. I, it was actually it was on the drive between Picton and Kaikoura. I think once he started to recognise that that we were like kindred, you know, and that you know I was not in this, I was not just some money hungry promoter, you know, and we just started talking, and it was like it was amazing. It was just like it was just another three days of just like inspiring talking talking to him, and you know, and when he when he got back to the US. He sent me like a gift, um, a book that was kind of referencing stuff that we'd been talking about and a nice card. And it's like, and it really made me realize it's like, this is why this guy is who he is. You know, I've just yeah. toured, I've just spent all these years touring all these bands. Yeah. And I got like maybe a couple of little small thank you cards and little gifts. But this guy sent me a gift from another country who was yeah. crazy busy. I mean, he does not have yeah, a life yeah, yeah, yeah. where he can just send people, you know, and I was like, oh, man, that this dude... You know, and I mean, he's always been an inspiration for me, and still, you know, discord and everything about their yeah, yeah. their staunch independence. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, the sort of the ethics around how they operate, to, or how you know exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so yeah, it was, so it was amazing. Just wow, that that was a really inspiring couple of days, and it really like definitely set up pretty much the next ten years of how I would approach things. You know, I mean. Um, you know, I mean that was funny because that was after the first the first festival, and I hadn't even really thought about doing more festivals and doing more events. And it was straight after, like I pretty much toured that. Uh, it was like, it would have been like two weeks after, I think, after the yeah. festival. So it, it was at that point where I was like, going, oh yeah, no, I'm not going to do alcohol sponsorship again. Actually, no, I'm not going to have any sponsorship involved. You know, it's like things on that that really shaped that the future of that event from just that tour I had with him because um, there were lots of opportunities where people could have bought into camp and I could have like taken it a different route but I guess um, yeah he shaped that and then so it, camp then just basically became my project could I create the perfect beautiful event mm. where if you know where the bands enjoyed it the people who went enjoyed it everyone got something out of it no one had you know no one yeah it was like could I create this paradise? You know? When does, you know, obviously each one has its own moments of that, but the first one is is arguably a failure, like mm -hmm. it's, it's a financial catastrophe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you can take whatever you want from that as experience and all of that, but when does it when does it really turn for you that um, this is a sustainable option and that 
everything fires. Is it the second one or is it the third one? Or the, it the, 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 the fifth one, really. Right. I mean, um, the, so the, that's the, what I figure. It takes. A, it's yeah. going to take a few, right? I mean, the, the third one was the first one that made money, but it so just that's, it, that's the first big beacon, like that's yeah, the glimmer yeah. of hope. But it, yeah. but it but it only just made money to pay back all the and pay back the debt. Yeah, Still, exactly, which was nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you it didn't have that option previously, so that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, but it all, it also made me realize that I couldn't that it wasn't sustainable. You know, because yeah. I, I was I was the one I was doing all the clean because you know I was still um, working on a volunteer basis. Yeah. So I, I had all these cleaners who didn't turn up. I had all these. I, I was running my stages on pallets. You know, mm. I had like dodgy dinky generators that I was like buying off trade me or like you know that would keep running <laughs> yeah, out yeah. and you know so it was just like it, it was a nightmare for me behind the scenes. So yeah. Everyone was having a really good time, but I was just like run ragged. You know, yeah. I was like run around. I was having to like leave the site to just be like going disposing of rubbish and stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is crazy. Like people, you know, I can't use volunteers anymore. And also, I you know the first two I hadn't been able to pay any bands. You know, I mean, I was you know obviously I was upfront with anyone when I talked to them. I said, look, this is a crazy event. I can't pay you, but you know. I'll sell you merch or do everything I can you know so but the third event was that was the first time I started paying bands but the thing is I was paying everyone different amounts of money and it was just completely random what amount of money I'd offer people I'd just be like going oh okay I'll pay you this much I'll pay this much I'll pay this much and I just didn't think that bands would be talking about that to each other right. you know and that was naive <laughs> at the time and so there was just like a lot of grumpiness and it was funny because like no one grumped when I didn't pay anyone um, because I guess because they understood yeah. they could see the financial strain yeah. I was under but as soon as you start paying people then that's when the grumps can happen so yeah. so it, it was so I basically I finished in 2009 that was actually the end of camp it was just over I was like nah screw this yeah. I can't deal with people being dicks and also this is too hard work so but it was then that um uh, I was introduced to the site uh, John Dix do you know John Dix yes, yeah. so he called me up one day he's like oh I've discovered this site in bulls that will blow your mind and I was like tell me about it and he just told me about it and and I was like damn and so I went up to bulls met him with him there and yeah it was this like you know unused um X school complex with you know full size gymnasium indoor empty swimming pool you know uh, 300 400 rooms fields like you know and it had been empty for 20 years it was all overgrown it was just like incredible and it's like it was a vision you know and I, and I, I walked into the empty swimming pool which was you know like a massive where it would fit like a thousand people in the swimming pool and I just looked at that room and I was like I, I can just picture Dan Deacon playing in here to like a thousand screaming people and it would be the most amazing moment of these people's lives. And so that one thing, I was like, I have to do this event again. For the dude on stage too. Yeah, yeah. You made out yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. And so I, so I had to do the event. And, and so then I was like, no, but I have to make it sustainable. So I can't just keep running this myself. So I have to make it more expensive and I have to make it bigger and I have to be able to pay people. Um, and then I started doing things where I just pay people depending on the distance they came from. So it's like every single member of a band. So it's like if you were a band from Wellington, each member of your band got this much. If you're a band from Melbourne, each member of your band got this much. And so it was just so to the point that if any band talked to another band, it was just all very open. Mm. Um, and that was something I, I, I continue to this day is I basically just pay people depending on how far they're coming from. And by this point, have you got, again with Camp, have you got bands starting to seek you out and see if they can be involved? Yeah. Like that? That kicks in when by Definitely. the third one, or um, even by yeah, the, yeah, massively by the third one. So, yeah. I guess actually, I mean, there was a couple of people who really helped with, I guess, the popularity of camp, and that was in the first year. So these Australian kids called Bang Bang Aids played, um, and they went back to Melbourne 
and they basically told Melbourne about it. Yeah. And then so the next year, I had, you know, a whole bunch of people, you know, maybe like eight or nine bands from Melbourne all ask to come over. And so they came over and then they went back. And then it was just, that that was it. For, so that's why the third year was the sort of year that made money because suddenly it actually went as far as cities. So then the third year sold out real fast. So the fact is like barely anyone from Wellington even got to go. As far as the people who bought tickets to that third one, it was Auckland and then Melbourne. And then Wellington was the third largest. Even though it was like 25 minutes from Wellington City, Wellington just don't buy tickets. They sat around. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was funny. So, But there were way more people from... There were three times as many people from Melbourne than there were from Wellington at that event. Wow. And um, and that was actually what made the event sustainable because suddenly with a, with a Melbourne audience coming, it just meant that when I put my tickets on sale... I could get, I could sell enough yeah. within that first three or four days to suddenly give me that confidence. Because that, I mean, that, that's the scary thing when you're an event producer. It's like, oh, I put my tickets on sale. If you don't know very early that you're going to do okay, you don't have the confidence to actually start paying bands good money and booking the bigger bands. Because you know, I would, I would announce my event before I'd even booked any bands. You know, and it was like basically it would depend on how many tickets came in those first few days that would then I then look at a graph and I'd go, okay, I can afford this much. So. That's why in 2010 the lineup was really good, but then in 2011 the lineup was phenomenal because I basically just knew that all this money was going to come in basically because at that point Melbourne and Sydney, you know, 500 people were coming from Australia for the mm. event, which mm. was just crazy. I mean, like, that's nuts. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so uh, yeah, thanks Melbourne, but basically, yeah, Melbourne really made the event sustainable. Um, and that, and I can track that back precisely yep. to those bands yeah. like like uh, Evelyn, um, who is, uh, plays as Pikelet. You know, she was a huge ambassador for me early on. Um, she's actually coming to play my New Year's event yeah. um, soon as well. I mean, like I, I, I could directly see her uh, her telling a lot of people about it. Yeah. Yeah. So in between doing these ridiculous events, which um, to anyone else, apart from the people who go to them and the people who, you know, performed at them, it sounds fucking absurd in terms of the logistics I mean. Um, like I still talk, you know, I've talked to you about them before a little bit and I don't know how or why you do it. Um, <laughs> frankly, beyond, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you can tell me as often as you like. Um, of the good vibes of it and the the elation and I believe it but I still think fuck is that really worth it the personal toll on yeah I mean it, it, it was definitely a massive personal toll those first few years by the time and by the time it got to 2010 so 2010 yeah. is the first time I ever actually did anything in my life that I actually thought about it in advance to make it make fiscal sense you know yeah. so I was like going wait a second it takes me six months of the year to organise this event Yeah. so it should be paying my rent at yes. least for that six months exactly. so, yeah, yeah. so suddenly for the first time ever I actually built in my living costs into the budget of what the festival cost and I was like going okay and also, I said I need to be paid for doing this event yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so you know I didn't you know and I, so I started I just I put those costs into budget and then I go okay all right now this is how much this event costs uh-huh. this you know prior to that you know everything was so ridiculously DIY that it was basically just like things were made that yeah. if it went really really well everything broke even yeah yeah and it's like you know that's, that's not, not sustainable <laughs> yeah 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 exactly. um, and so from 2010 onwards it then, I mean, it became my job. So it became mm. my job for six months of the year and it needed to make enough money that it basically paid for my living costs during that six months. And then at the after the event, it made enough money for me to go away on tour. 
So, because yeah. that, that's when I started touring overseas. Well, that's what I was just so, going to ask. I was going to say, yeah. so is that how you fill the other half of the year, yeah. basically? Yeah. So I, I would just pay rent. I'd be in New Zealand for six months and I'd be overseas for six months. Yeah. And so, the, and, and, and it wouldn't cost me much to go on tour, you know? I mean, like, it, I'd basically, because I would go with a band and I'd book all their shows and when we're on the road, everything was covered. So the PDMs would cover all our food costs, yeah. all our income would be sorted. So basically, I didn't pay rent for six months. And, you know, I mean, living in New Zealand is really expensive. It costs so much money to live here by the time you paid your food yeah and today it's crazy yeah. food is ridiculously expensive yeah. here especially if you want to eat healthy food mm-hmm. um and rent is crazy so i mean like you know it would, it would cost me 400 500 just you know 400 bucks a week just to survive in new zealand mm. where i can go overseas and be on the road and not pay any of that so um that became my lifestyle and it was yeah. bizarre you know but I, I don't you know if camp only made five ten grand that was enough to get me tickets and get me overseas and spend six months traveling with bands. And you know? traveling with bands means doing all sorts of things like house parties, a lot of house parties. Everything. I mean, that, that was generally the bulk of it were, yeah. were DIY kind of random shows. Yeah. You know, I, I did as few bar shows as I could because generally they weren't fun. I mean, in America, actually, it's, it's actually quite hard to play shows in bars. I mean, mm. You know, I mean, because the drinking age over there is 21, people don't go out to bars. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and the fun people, I mean, you know, yeah, our older as we get older, we're less fun at shows. Yeah. We just stand in the back. It's like yeah. e- every year you get older, you just step one step further back in the yeah. room until you're forty five and you're at the very very back of the room. Thirty five, you're around the sound desk, but it's like when you're eighteen, nineteen, twenty, you're at the front. Yeah, totally. So I mean, um, so that's the people you want to play to, and if you want to play to that crowd in America, you have to go to house parties, which uh, you know. So I, I and I, I didn't discover that until the, the first time I toured America that was the saving grace, you know, and we'd, so this was with Over the Atlantic, and they had, because their album came out on Car Park Records, and this is before Car Park Records blew up, like it was prior to Beach House, and Toria Moy, and Dandy, yeah. and all kind of getting big, so, the label, label was still definitely, you know, there's a lot of interest, so anyway, they had two booking agents, one in France, and one in America, and we gave them six months notice, and we said, okay, we're coming away for six months, book us some shows, and they just totally failed. So the American agent, we were in America for three months, Europe for three months. America ended up booking four shows for three months. And then Europe was like five shows for three months. So I wasn't meant to book the tours. I was just going to be a tour manager, driver. And then I was like, holy crap, we're going to lose a crazy amount of money. We can't, we can't do this. We have no money. And then so basically I went ahead on the original flights. Yeah. Everyone else changed their flights back a month. So the tour went from six months to five months. I went into um, state of... A place in Canada just hold myself up in a little um, stain without the landlord of the house knowing I was staying in this room for a month I just didn't I, I, I couldn't even walk during the day because if they heard my creaking I was like it was it was yeah. it was totally flowers in the attic like it was actually I was I was in the attic and it looked like flowers in the attic and I had to stay I'd get up in the morning and I would just sit in the couch and then I couldn't move all day until about five o'clock until the people downstairs had sort of gone you know started to go to bed I just I it's crazy anyway so I just spent all day on the computer yeah. trying to book shows yeah. and, it, and it was the discovery of this website called do DIY well it was called back then it was called do DIY USA.com.org and um, that was a 
kind of like a collection of like it would break down each state in America and then each city within that state and it would show all the DIY venues that those places had so it just meant I could suddenly look at a map of America and where I wanted to go and I could just contact each city on this map and go mm. we're coming through in this date and so in the space of you know a month even though our booking agents had six months and they'd booked us a total of ten shows and they're professionals that's what they do for their living I was doing this for the very first time and I managed to book you know another 25 26 shows in America and then like another 30 or 40 shows in Europe just by like kind of doing it and mm. I was like going man this is it's just another classic thing where it's like people in the industry make it seem perceived to be very difficult and they like they kind of you know well that's because know. that's because the industry that's been built up around it is about anything else other than doing it right yeah. so they have to leave plenty of time in their schedules to you know like fucking turn up at red carpet events yeah. and to pop champagne corks and to fucking play with themselves over it's the like, latest gadgets and the latest successes it's all that all that bullshit and it's in the way of the work and also you know they, they have their systems so it's like a booking agent how a booking agent works is basically they'll just do your bio have your availability and they'll just send it out to every promoter and they'll say this is this band's availability from the state to the state who wants it so it's like that's it they won't actually do an individual go to the, so they don't think they don't even think really and sorry this is talking really in a real generalization about booking agents I'm sure there's booking agents or different yeah, yeah, yeah. but the general way is that they don't think okay this artist would be perfect at this venue in this city because that would be incredible for the music they play for the community and that you know they, they just go who's got the money yeah. and so it's like I mean I've seen a lot of bands from New Zealand who have toured overseas and just played completely inappropriate shows you know but it's just like that's who was paying the money whereas I made a real effort yeah. to forget about who's paying the most money and what's going to be the most fun yeah. um and yeah, so and I decided to write another book about that, but that was a few years later after I'd done a couple of more tours with yeah. Disaster Radio. This is um, the DIY touring book. Yeah, yeah. Is that what it's called? Touring, touring yeah, yeah. World? D- yeah, DIY touring the world. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's a yeah. good book. Like I read that one, and um, and you've got some, as with all things that um, of that nature, like most of that book there's some crazy stories in it about about um <clears throat> the amount of travel you do and the sort of you know the logistic again the logistics of things and the and i think like the kind of energy levels required and but a lot of it just reads like absolute common sense in terms of like making something function yeah you know oh it's funny how just little things that you don't think about in advance mm. can make a total nightmare i mean like you know for me first time I toured overseas you know we didn't just think about we didn't go oh we should take a New Zealand multi-plug yeah yeah you know and so suddenly you have to buy four or five yeah. multi-plugs and it's like then you start losing them because everyone loses a multi-plug at mm. least once every couple of days mm. so um so it's like yeah it's and no one thinks about that you just go and just take one multi-plug and a New Zealand four-way or six-way board yeah, yeah. Right? you know but then don't lose that board yeah <laughs> you know because then yeah. trying to buy one yeah. <laughs> it's also a nightmare yeah um you know and just like tiny little bits of common sense and just things about like um you know like especially there were there were things that blew me away like in new zealand we're very used to the fact that petrol in the cities is cheaper than it is if you're like in a small rural town and see and that always made sense to me because i'm like going oh it makes sense it's more of an effort for the trucks to get to small places if you're in a if you're in barrytown it should be more expensive but in america it's the opposite yes so it's like you know when you do so by letting people know that sort of thing in advance and it's just like going look you know make 
sure you fill up with petrol, you know, before you enter a city. Like, you know, look yeah. at prices, actually do your research because the prices vary so much. I mean, they're yeah. from state to state. So, like, look at the price before you cross a state line, you know. Like, I mean, you can save a dollar a gallon, you know. Um, and especially when there's some of those big cars, you know, I mean, you might save 40 bucks, you know, yeah. by filling up at a different place. Yeah. Um, oh, probably not that much, but, you know. Yeah, you know, and just, like, just little tips that we'd find, you know. Like, my favorite thing in America... Uh, was this thing that we called burger editions where you know eating healthy in America is even harder than it is here yeah but, yeah but junk food and it's plentiful and it's it's, it's even hard to find a supermarket it's yeah. actually hard to find supermarkets and they don't have bakeries so it's like so I understand why Starbucks got so big because mm. for them it's their bakery like yeah, they don't yeah, do bakeries exactly. like New Zealand does so but you know so we'd buy these cheap burgers that cost a dollar but the thing is they wouldn't taste fresh so what we'd do as a group is we'd just buy like a lettuce and a tomato and then we'd just go buy all these dollar burgers and then just like slice up the lettuce and tomato and fill out these cheap dollar burgers and just like have them be real fresh and fun and it was just like a just a cheap way of like, yeah, yeah, you know, having that gross kind of greasy burger just feel a little bit <laughs> a nicer, little bit, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, there, and I guess there's just lots of little tips like that in the book, but also, you know, very practical stuff like, yeah. hey, if you want to get a visa, you know, this is uh, kind of how you go to that place. In fact, I remember you gave me the book and I was reading it on, on a flight to my first flight to America. So whilst I was just going on a holiday, and uh, it was nice reading it and then getting there and actually seeing. Uh-huh. First hand, yeah. you know, what you talked about, all this, all this stuff like, you know, fuck, where's the supermarket and where's it, and where's a cafe apart from a Starbucks? You yeah, know, like, yeah, and yeah. I wasn't too concerned with that stuff in terms of a tur- you know a touring yeah. lifestyle, but still, I was able to see it straight away and read about it. It was weird. Yeah, it's very weird, man. And yeah. you, you come back to Australia and New Zealand, and it's just bakeries everywhere, and like yeah. you don't realize how prolific the bakery and cafe is until yeah. you go overseas. You know, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, no, um, and yet you know, I assume you're very fond of America and, and mm. you know what what happens over there in terms of um, opportunities for bands and stuff. Just the fact that they can actually seek out a a wider audience and a, and a more arguably a more appreciative audience. Perhaps. Yes, I mean it's certainly not where you go to make any money. I mean, yeah. I guess every time I've gone there, it's been a financial hardship on the tour. You know, whereas um, Europe. And I guess actually uh, other countries as well. I mean, Australia, we do okay. So America, they don't have a lot of value in how much they'll pay for a show. I mean, that's the other thing. I mentioned it in the book, and I guess a lot of people realize that like bands who come here and play shows and their tickets are $60, $70, over there they're $15, $20. Yeah, yeah. It's like there's just a massive difference in perception. Yeah. And, you know, so over there... And also, you know, when you play a show in a lineup with like three or four other bands, if it's a DIY show, everyone's splitting that money evenly. Whereas, you know, in New Zealand, there's definitely a case of like if you're the touring band, you know, like certainly in the DIY scene over there, if you're the touring band, you usually get a little bit more, um, you know, sometimes a great portion more. But usually there's not a lot of money. Usually the shows are $5. Usually a whole bunch of people have snuck in you know because it's like they're just DIY shows or at houses people aren't being like really strict on the policy yeah. so then you might get like 40 bucks at the end of the night and that's kind of like the normal fee but you know you've you've paid to get there you've paid to like usually you know rent a car you've paid for petrol that day you know you've all had to buy food that day so I mean I, I generally worked out that on the the last disaster radio tour I did in America, you know, we was it was costing us between three and five hundred dollars every single day to be there. When I divided the cost of all our flights and all of that, it was a, it right. broke down there. You know, and we were on average making between fifty and a hundred dollars a day. Right, so I yeah, mean, yeah. that's a 
That's that's a, yeah, that's not. That's it's not it's a, a lot to absorb, yes. you know. Whereas Europe's the opposite, you know. I mean, we're making two to four hundred euro every day, but but all our costs and our costs are significantly yeah. less because all the food is cheaper. The car rental is like way cheaper. Yeah, well, the distances are as great as yeah, well, right? Yeah, like, exactly. It just and, and the petrol and all the cars mm, run on diesel, mm. and diesel's really cheap, and the cars are efficient. You get new cars mm. in America. You got. I mean, it's really nice because you get massive big cars, which is way fun to drive. Yeah. Yeah. drive on those big yeah. roads like, you, you have those cars with like those navigator seats yeah. where like people in the back can like turn around and stuff and yeah. it's like yeah I mean I love getting from the airport and getting into my American car it's always like wow this yeah. is ridiculous yeah. but then I start like going man I look at the petrol costs and I'm like far out yeah you know I mean that, that was the only the, the saving grace of that last Shocking Pinks tour I did in America last year was the fact that the petrol had come down significantly in price and I, I hadn't really factored that in but if the because we, we, we did a massive cross country trip again and if the if the petrol had been what it was the previous time we would have just lost another thousand dollars but it was like the petrol was affordable yeah you know yeah. and it made a massive difference you know to the point that it was half the price of the yeah. last time I was touring there I mean that pe- the petrol fluctuates so crazy it's it's crazy you know from state to state coast to coast and then from like month to month it's just all over the place so then you open a venue called Puppies yeah which is uh, what, what do you I mean you I, you, you write a book eventually about why you did why you mm. did it and why you deemed it a success but why did you do it so I mean I guess you know I'd been touring overseas and I'd seen the way that venues are quite different uh, in some of the venues in Europe and the way that they put the artist first mm. and I'd never really encountered that in many venues in New Zealand I mean there were some venues now like you know for example Chicks um, yep. Chicks in Dunedin they were putting always putting the artist first but I, I just wanted to have a venue that was actually like you know what which is why it's just closed down <laughs> yeah, yeah sadly you know, here's the stage and the PA mm. it's, to, it's the focus of the room yeah. it's going to look good it's going to sound good and I'm going to put effort into making it sound good and I'm going to have a back line that's provided for you so you don't have to lug your gear yeah. around I'm going to have like Wi-Fi there's going to be a nice backstage room for you to chill out and we're not going to push the bar drinks I'm not going to have ugly banners around the room yeah. that's going to make people you know and, and it's going to be it's going to be about your space and it's going to make it and, you know you're, when you're playing you're going to play on time so your audience isn't going to get frustrated and start getting itchy feet and start feeling like you know niggy vibes that are going to affect their enjoyment of the performance yeah. Yeah. and it's just it's all going to be very much about respecting the audience and respecting the band and the bar comes last and it's like I don't really think there's many bars that have ever opened that have put themselves as the last priority and that was the whole point of me going can I run a successful because I mean it had to be successful yeah um otherwise if it wasn't successful it would have proven you can't do it so I mean um but you know like any project you know I mean I mean things I, I don't drink I don't want to run a bar you know uh, one of my one of the original ideas with puppies was that it was going to run as a bar for two years, and then I was going to remove the bar, um, de-license it, and open as an all ages venue. And um, but as it got kind of nearer the point of having to start making that happen, mm. I just had these other projects I wanted to do, and I was like, man, I I had to spend two years in New Zealand. Yeah, I, I hadn't spent two years yeah, in New Zealand yeah. for a long time. Right, and I was just getting feet. I was getting yeah. feet, and I was like, oh man, I, you know, and run down some by the hours of. <laughs> the lot, well, the lifestyle of running a bar, right? I imagine. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, very, very much so. But and like, I did one of the things that people don't do. So generally, you open a bar and you lose money. It's like, so I opened a bar to pay back debt. You know, I, I had, I, yeah. had I, I had built up a lot of debt within the revenue department, and I had to pay them back. And I just, I had no income, so I, I opened a bar 
to pay back debt. And so I was paying them $200 every single week for two years. And then basically I knew when that time was up, I was like, oh, well, I don't need to pay them back anymore. I can now close this bar. And, um, you know, I mean, the, the plan was, I, I, I'd always had that timeline. I actually extended the, mm. I extended it by an extra two months because the landlord was just like, really really needing me to stay on you know i mean i planned three months of closing parties and it's like mm. no one can do that but especially with the artists i had so i mean you know, i've got like tiny ruins and the bats and you know um lawrence arabia doing three nights and you know yeah. like all the, like, the clean or something yeah yeah, 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 like, yeah like an amazing run yeah. of three months of shows and that that took me you know and a, I don't know a, if a long quite, time to put together quite at that time but uh two nights from liam finn which was yeah, yeah, amazing I mean, yeah yeah so that, that was you know and phoenix foundation did two yeah. nights beast wars did two That's nights right. yeah. um there were a lot of amazing shows there you know yeah. i mean that last three months of shows took i mean and also when i opened i had two months of shows so mm. effectively a lot of the time the venue was open was the opening and closing parties <laughs> you know and no, no one called me out on it like no one was just like you can't open for like a year and then have three months of closing parties. <laughs> you know? And, uh, but you know, I, um, I'd been planning it for a long time. I'd been planning to finish. And, and that's what, took, and, and in the book, and it, it took me by surprise as people were like going, Oh, it's a shame that the bar didn't work. I'm like going, really? I mean, did you see all the bands I had played? I mean, like if my bar didn't work, no other bar in New Zealand is working because I had the best lineups constantly. Yeah. That have, you know, and it's like, it did work. It's the first time I've made money in a long time. And then, you know, it did well enough that I didn't work for quite a while after. You know? well, I just sat around making photo books. Yeah, I think the I think the the uh, which so you mean um, basically archives were they like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean that that was always something I want. I, I mean I'd wanted to release a book of my photos in two thousand and four. Yeah. Um, but I'd never gotten around to it. I never had the money to be able to do it. And yeah. so and that's what puppies afforded me to do. Is it basically just just like okay, here's some money. What have you wanted to do? And because, you know, I had to scan over 100,000 negatives, you know, I, I, I imported two, you know, high speed, high quality um, neg scanners from America. And I just sat at home all day for six months, all day and night, just scanning negatives. And then I had to put together, so I put together 10 books. Would have been good, you know, good being up in that attic doing that. <laughs> would have been. <laughs> so it, it was a massive pro, I, don't, I mean, mm. I don't even think people can fathom how big an undertaking that was to yeah, yeah. scan those negatives. And so, but then, so then that process is done. So then I've got to like find the photos the 1500 photos that i was going to publish and then mm. i had to like you know um correct you know correct the dust um finding the names of every person who's in God, the shot yeah. finding the date that those gigs was even happening yeah so it's like i, I went round to um ash who used to run the package in wellington yeah, yeah. and i just spent a day around at his place going through his archives going through every single package that ever was ever printed and like trying to find match wow. these shows with dates because I just wanted it to be as accurate resource as possible. You know? I did some writing for the package. I remember that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I worked, I worked for them for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was great. Yeah. And lots of those photos I took yeah. before them. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that took me another six months of finding people's names, emailing people, like some bands, I'm like going, oh, I, I, you know, there were some obscure bands who might have played a few shows that I couldn't even work out who they were. Yeah. I'd have to email people and go, hey, do you recognize who's in this photo? <laughs> so I mean, that was like 1,500 photos I had to correctly identify. Mm. And then, then, then laying them out, like mm. designing everything, and then going through every single book, like three or four times, every single page to make sure everything is right and laid out properly and prepared. So it was like, it was literally like a year full time all day every day so that's you know. kind of your coming down project 
yeah, yeah. In it, a way, it, you know, it was like it, yeah. it, was, it was very much it was like a combination yeah. of like this is all my work and this is I'm now just thinking about myself. Mm. I'm, I'm not doing this for other bands. I'm not yeah. these people. I'm just doing a project that for me. As I get older and tired, I can just I can just pick up a book and flick through, and these are my friends. And but this is what I've been doing for last you know this you, period of life. You also wrote the the book about puppies. Yeah. About yeah. about running the venue and about which which again I thought that was a really good book. Probably um, in a way better than the DIY touring. You you know, you're probably getting better as a writer or whatever oh. you know. Um, but it was I was wondering, do you see? Do you start to see some of your influence in the way other uh, ventures are running? Like I, I go to Golden Dawn and I think they've, put, you know, uh, obviously Matt's two in bands and knows what he's doing and is very. But you know the way they treat people, I uh, sort of parallel that to some of the things you wrote in your book about how to treat people backstage and how to make people comfortable and I and think, then I look at like what iGum's doing, and you know clearly there's some connection to the camp. Well, I mean, I, 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 I think, I mean, I, um, after that book came out, I mean, Joel wanted to have a chat with me. I think he was really quite inspired by the chat yeah. about house parties, you know. I um, I really just tried to, like, demystify yeah. all these things to people and it was, like, just yeah. laying out the framework. Um, I mean, I definitely saw, there was a, a lot of inspiration straight after that book came out, uh, but primarily around playing times and advertising yes. them. Yeah, know? yeah, that's, and, so um, that's another really big yeah. one. And you see people now actually going onto the Facebook pages of venues yeah, and bands and play. demanding it, yeah, which yeah. is their right, yeah. you know, to ask as a, as a ticket buyer or, or as a potential ticket buyer because mm. that has a huge impact on now whether we go to things or not. Totally. No, and, I mean, I, 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 was, I was very proud to at least, I guess, get that conversation happening more. Yeah, I feel like that's and, something you know, that you've, yeah. you've, you've um, definitely started, you know, and, and, and you, as I say, you see it all the time now, like, mm. and... You know, I, I always want to know when something's on. You yeah. know, like, I, I, I don't <laughs> it's very fair. fucking, you know. And yeah. also, you know, like, you might go to two things in one night. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, I've had that situation as, as part of what I do, where I actually review two shows in one mm. night, um, if, if you can. And it can be done if you know, if you can coordinate your schedules. I mean, that, that was something that I was massively influenced by, because I, I used to spend usually about a month every year in Australia. Um, scouting bands for the festival yeah. and I was able to do that because the venues have agreements with each other about when they play bands so it's like well, this yeah. venue has every band play on the half hour which we're still this band play, has every band play on the hour so yeah. you can just like dart back and forth which we're still not good at here like no, I mean no. well we are by process of elimination you know <laughs> like soon soon you know everyone will be able to get to San Fran's gigs because they'll be the only fucking thing open but and, and I guess Meow and Caroline yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And that, exactly people. so they, they yeah. can coordinate that but yeah. But, uh, you know, you'll always find in Wellington, like, twice a year, there'll be a weekend where there's just five or six killer gigs on, mm. and they're all happening at the same time. So, you know, like, you might only want to get to two or three of them. Like, you know, you don't want to... I can't imagine you want to see absolutely everything of those five or six, but you might you might have wanted to get to two or three of them, and it can be done if they were scheduled better. 
I mean, I, I used to talk a wee bit with other venues in the city and other promoters, especially when I had a show that was really sig significantly after a certain audience. But I, um, I wrote a lot in that book about curation and why I didn't understand how most venues were using the typical way and that they mm. would wait for bands to approach them and then yes. they pencil in bookings. And I said, you can't do that as a business because, you know, I noticed fast, very, 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 very early on, if you have too many of one genre in the same mm. month, it just it kills that audience. You know, you can't have, I can't have six indie shows. I yeah. can't have, you know, 10 metal shows. So it's like, I would actually, I'd look at my month and what I would do is and I'd also go, okay, I've got to pay the rent on the 16th of each month. So the weekend before that has to be the biggest weekend of the month. Big so bad, I'd go, yeah, okay. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I, so I'd book those months in advance and I go, yeah. okay, I need, I need. Two nights of Beast Wars, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if, if people look at the pattern, actually they would probably pick that up if they looked at the all the gigs that happened. They'd see that the biggest shows are always in the same time each month. But then I'd also go, okay, so I'm going to have like one reggae show a month. I'm going to have like one electronic dance party a month. I'm going to have one punk, um, one, one crusty punk, one like post-punk. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd really break it down and I'd go seek out those bands and I'd make sure that the same audience wasn't being hit up constantly. And then it's like, I go, okay, well, if I can get the audience coming here once a month or once every two months, that's enough. Yeah. You know, and I mean, um, yeah, and I, I, just, I just didn't see any other venues actively seeking you know, and that's the same reason I had the backline you know I was flying bands in mm. I was organising other shows for bands around the country so I could bring bands over from Australia um, you know when I did that little square wave festival thing and I organised like you know 35 bands to be like touring the country it was like mainly so I could get like X amount of bands to come over and play my bar and then I had to organise tours for them so then I was like oh I may as well make a festival out of this um, but <laughs> I, I, I was very proactive and mm. I, I talked lots about the book because I think it's the only way you can be with yeah. venues you yeah. can't you know like because pe I mean people were probably like going man how are you getting those bands to play your bar and I was like because I approached them you know it's like no one bars don't really approach Holly and go oh can you do some tiny room shows at my bar you know Oh, I've, I've got these nights it's a really great space for you to play it's like people are probably like intimidated to approach yeah. a lot of these bands yeah, yeah. you know um, and also that was the whole point of the, the small venue with multiple shows and multiple nights it's like going you know, I've been having this conversation with a few a few bar owners over the last few years and saying you know go and talk to and I think I, I think I've largely picked up on this sort of thing from you and your books and stuff but saying like create and curate your own shows go yeah. to you know, Luke and Sam from the Phoenix Foundation live in Wellington. Get the two of them on stage together with acoustic guitars, playing stripped down versions of Phoenix Foundation songs and talking about who wrote what and how that, you know, and get them to have their little bantry fights. Actually, a show that you might have liked that I, I spent months painting but never came together was actually a show that was going to be called Banter and I was going to get all these musicians to come in and just do 10 minutes of comedy. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so, because um, there was so many musicians, yeah. you know, I was going to like try and get like Craig and Tom yeah, from yeah. Cassette to come in, yeah. you know, and Luke and Sam from Phoenix Foundation yeah, yeah. and just put the two of them on stage without any yeah. instruments and just interact with the audience. Yeah. And I mean, it could have been a total flop, but I mean, I, I, I ran the idea by quite a few musicians and it was going to be like um you know i, I one of my favorite god um chelsea from um x teacups yeah. um is hilarious every single band she's in absolutely amazing you know yeah. um one of the funniest people hands down anywhere yeah. you know uh, and I think so, and I like, like Luke Rao you know it was like when he started doing eyeliner it actually became a project that was almost a, a comedy performance yeah. you know um, he was sitting down and like jokes would actually take up kind of 
a lot of the set. Yeah. And I, I started seeing that from lots of bands. I was going, this is, and it's, a, it's, it's a shame I never really did that concept, but I think it would have been really good. It would have worked really well at Puppies too. It would have been perfect for it, absolutely yeah. perfect for it. And I, I had a plan, I had it penciled in when I wanted to do it. Yeah. Um, and I just I just kind of like lost the nerve, you know. But you know what I mean though, like <laughs> yeah. go, go to people like that, and, you know, yeah. even even the banter aspect doesn't need to be in it, but just get people doing something slightly different, like get an acoustic show from a band that normally, you know, try and get Beast Wars to play Unplugged. Yeah. You know, like oh man, I mean, there's lots those of sorts ideas. of things. Yeah. People bars need to be doing though. Actually, yeah. going to the people and suggesting you do this, or even if it's just you play a set and then someone from your band or bunch of you DJ afterwards. Oh. You know, and you hang out in the bar and people can come up and talk to you and you play like stuff that you're into and stuff that's influenced you. You know, I, I talked about it very specifically in the book when I talked about the power of club nights. Yeah, that club nights can be a multitude of things. Mm. So I spent I spent months working on this idea that would have gone off had we finished it. We put the band together, so I basically had this idea of actually a good covers band. You know, because I mean, people love covers bands. You know, and I was like, going, what if there's a covers band who actually played good songs and yeah. like really creatively? You know, like a really interesting covers band of really of great, you know underground musicians so we put together the band and they had like I think two rehearsals and then but the problem with that is that they're really creative people and they've got itchy feet and they've got like tons of other projects yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean the idea the, and so we started working on that for a while and I think had I been able to pull that off it would have been a huge thing like every week and we were going to have like a, um, a playlist where people could like rec- um, recommend what songs they wanted to hear the following week um, you know I worked on that so I mean I, I did put together a club night uh, the last six months of the bar with this band called Three Chains who played one show at my venue that it was like maybe 40 minutes long and I was just like watching them play and I was like going if I asked this band they could play for three hours you know and I'm like going and, and but it's but it's not it's not jazz or blues or anything that's jammy in the way that people would like assume to hear it for three like this is music that you wouldn't expect to hear for three hours it's like you know it's kind of like it's there's jazz elements to it but it's R&B so I'm like going, you, you know, you don't expect to just walk into a bar and see an R&B, R&B band playing in Wellington for like hours. So, and funny. So I talked to them about that. And then, yes, the original set's like maybe 90 minutes long and then start going for two hours. And then it's just like, they just jam on a song. And it got, and it was amazing because the people would come back every week and they'd be looking forward to these certain songs and mm. like these certain lyrics because they'd only play like for six songs. But it just got to the point where it would start going for three hours, you know, and... um <laughs> It was, and it worked for the bar because it's just like, and because people don't take their time into account when they're organising things. The time it takes to organise a show, that's why I did lots of those double double nights because yeah. like for me that's just it's half the work. Yeah. As soon as you got you know, but then and then if I have a club night where I've got the same band playing every single Wednesday night, well then immediately that just strips back so much of my work, and then yeah. I can re put those hours into doing other things like promoting that show. Yeah, um, yeah. Marketing so, I mean, the venue, whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's it's just it's it's been sensible, and um, you know, and I also so and I also had other promoters working for me. So like Sam and Son, who is now based in Berlin. Yeah. But, you know, I would contact him and I'd say, okay, hey, can you like. Put on a really, you know you put on great parties can you put on a really great party once every two months you know it's like it was how San Fran have that deal with um, you know Billy you know puts on the, the oh, to- yeah, Atomic yeah, and 24 yeah. hour party people so I mean yeah. like, just you know you got the solid show yeah, you know, once a month be, you know that's going to happen and yeah, it's yeah. going to you know, numbers are going to be up and down a little bit, but it's, but it's always, always going to be, be yeah, yeah, a, yeah. a good show. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. I don't. I still don't know why that's not you know happening more often though. Like I think mm. we have this uh, bit of an itchy feet thing and a bit of a like complex about instant failure because like regular features 
uh, if you want to call them that, or club nights in, in, in the context of the bar. But regular feature programming takes a while to pick up, right? Mm. Like, yeah, you know, it does. And, you know? And, and there's big spaces I mean, in, this, in this town, and it's hard to get so if that you, if you, So we try, exactly. So mm. we try something for two or three weeks, mm. and then go, or we try it once a month for three months, and then go, no, that hasn't worked. Yeah. When actually, you know, like I remember doing a, um, a segment on a radio show, and uh, you know, I, I, for, for, for a couple of years for News Talk ZB, and after about the first three or four weeks, I said to the guy, you know, does this work? Because they were paying me quite good money to just sit and talk shit for five or six minutes each week. Yeah. And I was like, does this work? Is this what you want? Like, is this okay? Because I, I felt guilty. And he said, it's fine. Like, um, it's going to take a while before it catches on. We won't know. Like, obviously there's enough money to pay you to do it. Let's just try it. And uh, you, you'll know when it doesn't work, you know? Like, and the funny thing is no one will say that it's working. When it stops, people will ask where it is. Yeah. Like, they won't actually say at the time, oh, cool, we're looking forward to that. They'll just come to expect it, and then when it stops. And that's exactly what happened. You did it for a couple of years, and then it stopped. And then I started getting messages from people going, why aren't you doing that anymore? Oh, it stopped. Like, they, you know, they're done with it, whatever. Um, no one ever said, oh, looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, probably no one was. But, you know, like, I feel like that's the attitude across the board, just about, like... Oh, I mean, with, with so many projects, you know, th you always look back on things, you know... Uh, with rose tinted glasses yeah. in some way or like but you know you don't yeah you don't really and, that, and that's hard when you're doing any projects is if people don't give you that feedback while it's happening mm. you know I mean in most of my projects I've been lucky enough that people have communicated with me and, well, and usually I, I, I've, I've finished things I like to finish things before mm. they get stale you're kind of caught fun, you know? you're kind of courting the feedback too yeah. with with the newsletters the books the you know the sort of open-ended approach to being contacted and, yep. and the communication is up yeah which, 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 is, which is probably one of the hardest things and that is probably takes up the most time for me mm. is that I, I, I yeah I mean like even just that I allow um, a payment plans for my events you know yeah. that, that takes me probably almost close to an hour every single day just to go through payments that have come in assigned to the right people's name chasing up people who are missing payments like people don't put them in the bank account and they don't yeah. list them properly and I have to like work out by like yeah. process of elimination whose payment this actually is yeah. and it's like it takes me a lot of time but it's like I feel I feel that personal connection with people is a really strong part of why people trust what I do I mean because I, I, I never for a second like don't know I mean people have a lot of trust in me and they you know they come they pay this money go to my events yeah. and they don't know what's happening and so it's like I don't want to take the piss with that trust and yeah. I appreciate the risk that people will take you know especially with camp and people coming from all around the world for it you know people are spending thousands of dollars and committing to a big trip and mm. it's like that pressure on me makes me you know okay I, I need I, I have need to offer a personal service I don't want them dealing with some random person that doesn't actually have anything to do with the event you know they want to talk to the person who the buck stops with and mm. you know um, and they want to feel so when you're doing puppies, the other thing that starts to emerge, I think, is your musical voice. You as a musical entity, as a as a, a DJ, as a, a a performer, doing your doing your cut ups and your 
Yeah, I mean, various you read live remixes and one one of my plans with puppies was to become a good drummer. Like that was right. I, I went into it and I was like, I'm gonna have a house drum kit on that stage. I'm gonna drum all the time, and that was my plan. I was like, going two years, I reckon I can be a good drummer out of that. Mm. But then I, I just didn't. I didn't drum at all because I got this um, DJ. I, I I end up having to become a DJ because I booked these DJs to play. But then as soon as the bar died, which was usually around like one thirty two a.m., I was just like, I need to pay this DJ another hour they don't want to be playing here because no one's here. So, you know, I'd always give them the option. I'd say, look, do you just want to go home now? You know, whatever. And they'd be like, yeah. Because <laughs> there's no one yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. So I'd just be like, but I need to open the bar till three, you know, because I'm also a firm believer in if you tell people you're doing something, you got to do it. So if it's like, if I've advertised I'm open till three, I've got to open till three, you know. Again, it comes from... back to that thing of like, eventually after a few weeks or months, people exactly. will turn up when they know. Don't just... Yeah close early because it keep closing early because it didn't work once exactly. yeah yeah and, and this thing's and it became a thing you know? yeah it actually became I'd always start DJing at 2am and it became like there was like a group of quite a few people who would come to expect that that I would do these ridiculous DJ sets they were always different every single time and I'd just pick mm. a theme and like they were over the top and um and then you know I, I'd just go into the bar because I mean I was I'd just be bored. I'd be, I'd be like a Monday night and I'd be at home and I'd be like restless and I'd just be like, nah, screw it. I'm just going to go into the bar and I'd just like DJ and I'd open the door and I'd just DJ for like four hours and, yeah. uh, and like random people would walk past because that's the beautiful thing about that venue. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's out of the way but if you walk past and people look in there's like smoke machines and lasers going off <laughs> and, and like they go, they walk in. Yeah. And I'd have these private parties with like two or three people and so I'd just put on a track and then I'd come and dance with people but I'd get them a drink and then I'd go and I'd do a bit of remixing and then we'd have a party and we'd just, and I'd have these conversations like there's this, you know, and it happened quite a few times, but one time we were, a group of like maybe 10 kids came by like on some random night of the week and we partied for like maybe about an hour and, I, and I'd been DJing to myself for like five hours. So at that point I was like, I got to stop. And so I just like turned the song off midway. And then we all just sat down and we just talked for like about an hour. Yeah. Just about stuff. You know? So it's kind of, kind of public practice for you. It's where you, yeah. where you learned to do it or, 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 or improved doing it. Yeah. And you had this, you know, the potential of an audience it, all it, the time. It was just, I mean, that was one, that was probably my favorite thing. If I have to think, my favorite thing about having the bar was having a space where you can just go and do whatever yeah. you want. And, and I would get lost in what I was doing. So it's like, I, I'd be so focused on having this party and I'd forget that the doors open. I'd forget that people would just walk on in and people, and I'd look up and there'd be people dancing. I'd just be like, this is really weird. Like, this is not advertised. No one knows I'm open. Yeah. And it, it's, yeah, it's probably my favorite thing. And I, I'd feel quite bad because sometimes I'd want to like, you know, go, man, this party's real cool now. There's like 20, 30 people here. This is real awesome. Should I like tweet about this? But yeah. we like going, man, it's real dumb. So it just became this like secret thing that I didn't even tell people I was doing that until, mm. it, was, until it was all over. And mm. I was like going, because it was this nice thing that everyone who did manage to stumble upon one of those and had a really great party has this memory of this thing that, you mm. know, was just, yeah. And it wasn't, it, you can't even say it was secret because I would just only decide last minute if I'd yeah. just go on and open the bar. I'd just be yeah. like, oh, yeah, I'll do it tonight. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what have you been doing since closing the bar? We were going to talk about your um, little gadget that you bought at this right at the start of this, and we, we <laughs> because you you sent me down the path of talking about you too. Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, I'm sorry. No, that's fine. <laughs> it's good because it, it means we haven't messed with the chronology. We've yeah, actually yeah. followed your timeline through quite well. So, so f- fill me in because um, one of the things I, I, I sort of have with you is yeah, I I don't often need to know what you're up to because you never bombard me with 
newsletters I've never wanted to unsubscribe but you give me enough information that I usually know <laughs> roughly what you're up to yeah. I can contact you if I want to know more but just lately uh, you disappeared a little bit off the radar so tell me mm. what you've been doing I mean I definitely when I was working on that set of 10 books that I released yeah. so I definitely like I took almost a year it wasn't a year off I, I worked my ass off mm. but, you know a year I, off I, publicly I, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah 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 so that was the time for me just to get that done and then during that time um so Andre um came at the Andre Katori who's set up the new uh, school of music over at Massey's yeah. he'd come over from the UK and he'd started talking to people about a, a new music school and how that should look and so he talked to me I mean puppies were still running when he first talked to me so yeah sometime in 2014 or 2013 even so I, I met with him and uh and so uh, from early on, I was like going, this is actually a new career path that could be quite interesting. And it's like, and I mean, I didn't find out till I guess 2015 that I'd actually be teaching there. Um, but it certainly got me thinking that that might be a path that I could go down. Mm. Um, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I I put together. I'm still I've still been ridiculously busy. I guess that in in 2015 as well as so in 2014 I knew that I'd be teaching. What, what year is it now? It's 2016 now, right? Yeah, so it's yeah. nearly finished so, too, yeah, by yeah, the yeah. way. <laughs> so I I knew that I'd be teaching um, at the start of this year. So I put together. I I, I wanted to go on one last kind of long tour. Mm. So um, and being that I was close with all the um, dudes in Shocking Pinks and that they were like my favorite musicians and. Uh, I wanted to also experiment with some ideas about releasing records internationally, but this this idea that I had for a long time, it's it, it's like a, a couple of times when I've done like keynote speeches and things, I've talked about the way I see the future of the record industry being um, as being more uh, localized and the the destruction of the international record label and things becoming co-ops, and I, I started building this idea about like going okay, it's really hard to sell a thousand records if you're one record label of a new underground band, but it's not hard to sell 50 records. So it's like, could I find 20 record labels around the world who were just kids? So just people, if I can just find someone and go, look, do you want to be a record label? Do you want to be the record label for Wellington? So rather than find like a New Zealand record label, actually find someone and go, hey, look, Slowboat Records, do you want to do 50 records? You're the Wellington distributor, sell them in your shop, sell, you can sell them at the Wellington show. Mm. So I started coming up with this idea of like going, actually, that's a way where instantly so you shrink you shrink your audience but you expand it massively because suddenly rather than labels being countrywide they become citywide and then even potentially like suburban wide yeah. so so I, I first implemented the very seed of that idea with the shopping pinks release so i started just talking to my friends in europe and i was like going okay you know hey look you know one of my friends in um paris you know has put out a couple of cassettes and i was like going oh look you know do you want to do you want to do a hundred records you know and he was like oh yeah yeah that sounds cool i said you know we'll, we'll do six shows in france to help support you if you commit to doing this you know and then I, I, a friend in the uk i was like oh look you know do you want to get you know buy whatever records so i'd approach these people with an amount of money that wasn't a huge amount of money that they could afford that they could take a risk yeah. you know and then and then i'd go okay if you promise to do this i promise i'll come and do some shows in your country so i managed to get that for quite a few countries actually um i mean i probably had like another four or five little labels I mean it was the very very start of a project which I could see being a really interesting mm. concept um, and so yeah I did that with Shopping Pinks and also it was the first time I got to tour China so planning that was really interesting um, 
and yeah, it was it was planning a tour as well for professionals who actually need to get paid. Which is like, mm. you know, a lot of times when I tour, it's been more about a holiday. And, yeah, um, and this and time, see what comes. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. And this tour was the first time where I'm like, you know, these people, you know, we took probably one of the greatest New Zealand's greatest in demand drummers away on tour for four or five months you know so suddenly basically five bands are inactive <laughs> during that period and um and you know it's, it's people who you know and so I, it was a test for myself i was like going can i actually organize a tour around the world doesn't cost any of these artists up front any money and also pays them a per diem every single day we're on tour mm-hmm. and i was like for me that was like man that's an insane project you know can i completely cover the cost and people actually get paid while they're away yeah. Um, and, and it happened, you know. And so for me, that was just like a. I had to prove that to myself that I could organize that, that I could actually make a sustainable career out of mm. touring overseas mm. from something that had more been like, oh, everyone's got to put in, you know, three, four thousand dollars each, buy all our tickets and stuff, and then maybe you might get some of that back. But um, so, yeah, so I, I spent a lot of last year working on that, preparing all my work for Massey. And then this year, I started teaching at Massey. Um, I just did one one paper this year but it went really well and um the school have got some really exciting stuff coming up and i think i'm working on four or five papers next year so what sort of things are you talking to people about there so the paper that i write entirely myself and teach myself is called live music one and it's actually it's a really unique paper i think globally yeah and that basically it's a it's a full semester course on how to put on diy shows um and not 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 just you know the practicality it's in a university concept context mm. so it mm. really talks about like you know and how many people are enrolled uh, so that's in the the industry majors there's three majors at massey one's industry one's practice and one's technology um and so there's about 30 to 35 students mm. doing industry so mm. um so yeah, I taught that, and then I co-developed a paper called The Gig, which was actually a practical application of those skills, and also actually putting on events, but it's putting on like creative events, not just going to a bar and doing things. So there was one actually just down in Arrow Valley, that I don't know if you saw it was happening, it was oh, the, yeah, the, the garage, yeah, yeah, the ones yeah. garages. I, 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 I sort of cruised past the end of it, Yeah, and um, and it was pretty good. So that was just some first yeah. year students yeah, from yeah, Massey cool. who were putting on that, you know. Yeah, well they, um, they came and door knocked and, and explained uh, that it was happening, which was nice uh, touch. Too, awesome, awesome. you know yeah. gave us a warning that you know um and i was i was out at a at a band practice actually i was filling in for a band and um so yeah on the way home i caught a bit of it it was oh, cool cool yeah, yeah. I and mean, there were lots of those gigs you know one group of students did like a little renegade show where they got like a little radio transmitter and they went out to island bay and they had some performers play in a van and broadcast yeah. it to just cars who could yeah. tune in who were nearby yeah. uh one group um, got the lighthouse that's also yep. in Island Bay and they put yeah. performances on all three levels and then like um, did two shows in one night so actually like got a whole three different acts cool. together and did that and I mean there were some really interesting creative shows yeah. that were happening and I was ridiculously proud for these first year students to be organising promoting and you know running these really creative interesting shows mm. um, so is that paper ne- next year just there's another paper there's an extension of that paper this year that was called the gig that was put on shows next year we actually do a paper called the tour which is getting um the students actually out on the road you know which is um it's going to be a, a phenomenally exciting paper uh, and a real challenge um, yeah wow uh and you know and there's there's other paper, papers i'm working on as well so that's been definitely a huge focus for me but also um about i guess close to 18 months ago um i noticed that a friend of mine on facebook 
had been just developing this instrument in his bedroom and um and i was i just see little photos and videos pop every now and then and i was like man this looks really amazing like ridiculous and uh i just got talking to him about it at a gig once and i said oh man can i you know i'd love to help you out you know have you ever thought about you know selling that and he's like oh no nah, i mean a couple of my friends might be interested maybe I might make a couple of units for them and I was like man you know, I mean this looks really good mm. and so I said oh so I, I asked I basically invited myself around to his house took a little look at what he was doing and said oh you know look if you ever want to get some ideas for promotion about how to sell this let's chat and so we chatted about it I took it away home had a play on it and wrote a whole bunch of songs the first night and I was like this is what I've wanted my entire life I just didn't know it you know, I've wanted to make music. I can't write music. I can't. I can't play guitar. You know, it, it takes too long for me to put things together. This songs were just flowing out of me, and um, and so I just said, "Oh man, look, this is incredible. This is changing my life. I want more people to know about this. I want to be involved in this. I think people will be really excited about it." So mm. I just basically helped guide, kind of, I guess, the development of where that went you know I, I, I introduced it because at that point he was just making a machine for himself so it was just like he was solving his own problems with what he wanted in yeah. device yeah. and then I said oh we should actually show this to some other Wellington musicians so I just you know organised for a whole bunch of friends electronic musicians to come around to a friend's studio and um, spent a couple of nights people just looking at it and like being blown away but also adding feedback and going oh why don't you add this and so they basically gave him a whole bunch of features he went away for six months wrote a whole new firmware, updated the hardware, added all this new stuff. And then six months later, we went and we invited the same people around and we said, look, oh, we've done everything you asked for. Do any of you want to buy it? And um, so, I think we showed maybe 25 people or so and like, I think 10 of them, oh, you know, we sold like 10 of that first one, which was just like a real trial prototype. But we only wanted to do a small run because yeah. we wanted to make sure everything was working. And so we made 10 of that and um, those, th they've been using them for... So it's a portable synth and sampler. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's everything you need to make music without a computer. So it's got a, yeah, it's got a full synthesis engine built in, uh, a really, really powerful sequencer, a sampler. I mean, it's got a built-in built -in mic, or you can line in a mic, or you can line in an instrument, so you can sample anything on the fly. You can like um, affect all those samples. You can put your own samples on an SD card and load them off an SD card. And you can just program songs and yeah. very, so very, very fast. You use it to trigger anything. Yeah. But it's yeah. also, it's really powerful. So it's like, there's other... And really portable. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, it's actually like, a, you know, there's massive global interest in this device. I mean, yeah. what, what, what he's done over the past, I guess, six, eight months since we've really been starting to implement feedback from people is just deliver this thing that's blowing people away. Mm. And um, so I've spent, but we had, we had no money. So, I mean, he, he's, he's spent, Rowan, uh, who's built this, has spent three years of his own time just working full-time on this building it. And um, he spent his own money prototyping it, doing all the development. And we've mm. just got no money promo. So I had to work out a way of how do we sell this without spending your money. Mm. Um, so that was really interesting, applying my DIY touring knowledge to releasing an instrument, which was I applied the very, very same principles. I just... Is the same the whole same reason I started a low hum was like going I can't afford to advertise so I will tour because I know how to tour and break even so I did the same thing with this I started just putting on little, little demos in venues around mm. the country and I'd start organizing shows and I was away in Europe on holiday at the time and I was like going okay while I'm here I know all these venues I know all these people I'll do a whole bunch of demonstrations it won't cost me anything to go around to someone's house so I just put all these like messages on forums going if you would like me to come around to your house and show you this instrument 
just invite me. Yeah. So I just get all these random emails from just random people all through <laughs> Europe. And I just, you know, I did like maybe 30 or 40 like demos in people's houses. And like for them, it was like a really unique experience because it's like, when does a instrument manufacturer come to your house, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have, a, have a cup of tea and yeah. show you their new synth, you know? But for, but for me, it was like very standard. I'm so used to doing events in people's houses. I'm yeah, just yeah. like, it, it's, not, it's not a strange thing for me to do. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it was funny that I was getting called out a wee bit on Facebook, you know, people like going, why are you doing this? This is just such, such a weird, why, why, why? And I was like going, well, it's not weird in my world. Yeah. It's like, it's perfectly normal to take, you know, I just look at it as being a musical product. He's, he's invented this, you know, just like you would a song as a musical product. And it's yeah. like, now we're taking it to the people because it doesn't cost us money to take it to the people. Mm. Um, so that was fascinating. And we, we just launched it uh, October 25th of this year, 2016. And um, we had like $200,000 in orders in the first 30 days. Um, we just had a cutoff of 30 days because we just wanted to um, make sure, you know, uh, we, we, we couldn't do too big a production run in the first time you know we, yeah. we we had we we had a deadline of when we could deliver those products and if it had been too big we wouldn't have been able to meet that deadline and we just wanted to make sure everything was working perfectly yeah um and then when we go back into sale again uh early in 2017 um we'll have a new a new plan um but yeah we were blown away it was way more than we were expecting um and already we've got a massive waiting list Wow. as well and it, it's going to be an exciting time and also Rowan has plenty of other ideas um, other things that he's already worked up into kind of a very early rough prototype stage I mean this will be our focus for quite a, for quite a while you know mm -hmm. we'll be making sure that it's completely supported there's lots of firmware updates that you know people are really happy with it and you know it is the flagship kind of yeah. product you know and then once things are ticking along and you can afford to also spend time on other things as well as keeping this supported um, so I think it's going to be a pretty exciting time and, and I would I mean I was always also planning to if not write a book about it mm. at least give other people the knowledge because there, there's crazy amount of talented people making tech in New Zealand but a lot of them haven't you know it's like they haven't met that person or they haven't got that marketing person who like believes in them that really helps them sell so it's like they, ha they often have to like seek investment or find other people or sell their company to to get that and it's yeah. like I just want to provide people with a little bit of information and go look it's actually really simple it's just like going overseas if you're a band it's just about sending some emails and it's the same thing if you're about releasing a product it's just about identifying where that audience is and how to let that audience know about it and I mean it's as very simple as just maybe like identifying the three or four websites that that community gets involved with and then making sure that that those websites in the community are interested in what you're doing if if you make that come together then everything else is done you know so i mean there was a lot of product you know a lot of product research because like when ron had just been building something for himself mm. as soon as you start thinking oh what do people actually want then it all it all changed you know yeah, yeah. and um yeah and i mean that was something i guess though i guess you, or you also you you always got to keep it what you want as soon as you start doing things solely for other people and, and your yeah, soul yeah. has gone Lose from the project. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, this thing is, he, he still is in full control over everything. Yes. Like, he, he does every single little bit, you know. We, we've had lots of people offer to go, oh, you know, we'd love to come in and help write code. He's like, no, I want to do everything. It's like, it's as much of a process of him learning everything about it. Yeah, yeah. But, All um, the technical yeah, side yeah. of it. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating little device. I mean, and so it, it's really for musicians and 
I guess, creative non-musicians and thinking, tapping, coming full circle and thinking about Brian Eno again, you know, thinking yeah. about his, his great description of himself as a non-musician. It's, it's like a songwriting tool and an enabler for non-musicians, but also like a, a palette board for musicians as well, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, I think that was the, an important aspect of my involvement is I was like going, I don't want to work on a project that is targeted at learners or just targeted at the advanced Experts. user. Yeah, yeah. I was like going, I want something that... Like a guitar pedal or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's like something that you want... Because, you know, my, my friends and the people I deal with and the artists I work with are all, like, thoroughly advanced using the most hard-out tech. And mm. I was, like, going, I want something that they can be excited about using. But by the same token, someone who's never ever used an instrument before. A complete so, beginner can... So, so a lot of, most of my, my product testing was done with those extreme ends. You yeah. know, I, I'd, I'd be showing my, my nephews and nieces, yeah. you know, and I'd be, like, going, have a play on this. And I'd be watching them interact with it and seeing... What they did, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I'd I'd lend it to my friends who are like, you know, been using hardware for 20 years and like going, you know, oh, what are you, how do you interact with this? Um, because it's important, it's important that it meets both those worlds, you know, um, because they both, you know, the 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 young users, the new users won't want to use something that isn't also respected and being credible by the advanced users because they, they they want to picture themselves being that person it's like it's like when you're young and 13 you don't want the Samic guitar you want the Fender Strat because yeah. your your idols use that yeah even though even though you don't need it and you, you can't know, make it sing like they can yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know you, you've got years on your Samic before you really yes. need that Strat but yeah. you, you you like you want that Strat yeah you know and um, so it, it, it was very it was very important that we didn't make a Samic <laughs> <laughs> no offence, whoever does. <laughs> um, so next year and going going on from here, the two main things are obviously are, are this product and 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 the university work. Yeah, I mean, and I I don't want to lose my event organising chops. You know, mm. I, I definitely still uh, like when I stopped doing camp. One of the reasons was I just wanted to stop doing the same thing every year mm. so I just wanted to change it up and that's why the the next New Year's event um, I did was that a little Elohim house party where I booked um, I booked out a, a lodge um, up in uh, Ruapehu uh, oh yeah yeah oh no oh, oh okay yeah. um, sorry for the weekend I mean everyone who came to the event actually got to stay indoors you know yeah. because, because the wet weather of my last camp was such a has had such a psychological effect on me I wanted an event where everyone was indoors the whole time yeah. so basically there's you know so there were a couple hundred people there all the bands played indoors everyone stayed in on bunks and in rooms and they booked those bunks for their friends so it was like you can book a four bunk room or six bunk room or eight bunk room Mm. Um, and that was really exciting and it was just like it just meant I got to do a completely fresh thing that I hadn't done before and I think going forward that's kind of what I will be doing you know I think um, you know I have I I have crazy amounts of ideas you know even it's like we brought up before that banter show idea you know I I have like books full of just like weird one-off concepts for shows yeah. you know and so and it doesn't mean you can't trot them out down the line yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. and this thing is like I, I don't I guess I don't feel the pressure to do that now as a career because for, for years that was my income so I had, yeah, I had yeah. to make X amount of money from putting on shows whereas now I can go actually you know I can just do whatever I want so like, you could attempt yeah. something like that 
purely as artistic folly yeah. rather yeah. than you know worrying that it's exactly. a, yeah yeah though, though I, I need to make sure i have the time because now yeah I, I, have, I have a boss you know yeah. messy university is the first time i've had a boss in you know 20 years so yeah. um you know uh, it's important to me i i i want to treat them the same way i would expect someone who i've employed so um you know i need to make sure that i do my job properly and also you know i i take everything really personally so it's like i want all my students to be massive successes mm. you know and so I, I i haven't got to the point of being a jaded teacher who doesn't care anymore <laughs> so yeah, yeah i'm still the passionate like you know just yeah, yeah. teaching every student has to like you know become the most successful you know Every single one of students has to be Steve Jobs. It's like, yeah. you know, every single one. So. Give, it, give it another year or two, though, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, yeah. Man, fuck, you don't slow down. You've, you've had a busy, like, two decades, it seems. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I definitely, I don't know... Yeah, when I did you did you always run at that did you always run at that speed as a kid? No. No. No, 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 definitely not. I guess I just I'm somebody who as soon as I have an idea I really struggle to not do it. And that's that was what when when I put that book out, um, the reason why I ran puppies and I listed those, you know, the ten problems with music scene and how I'd fix them. So you know, lots of those things I, I, I detailed out some of these ideas I've had, you know. Even one that you kind of brought up earlier with that whole my idea for doing two shows in one night where yeah. like every venue would just repeat an early show and a late show, yeah. you know, which is like for me just seems such a sensible option. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, so you can go to two shows in one night and yeah. see the whole show. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I mean, I just had these really simple ideas which I never really got the opportunity to try. Yeah. You know, and I've got way more. I mean, that those essays, there were so many more essays that I didn't run, you know. I mean, and ones I've been working on for ages, you know, I, I never ran. Like, even my, my ends it on ear overhaul essay was, you know, the book came out a little bit after Caddick did his review, but effectively my my review was very similar. I had different ideas for how I thought ends it on ear should go ahead in the future. Um, but, you know, I, you know, man, I'd, t- I'd tackle lots of uh, different subjects you know I just felt that after a while I just had to like choose 10 mm. uh, key things mm. and even and the one that kind of got picked up the most the April one was originally like three or four times longer but it just started just getting ridiculously ranty and I was like <laughs> going you know I mean there's a lot of problems with APRA mm. I was like going I just need to focus on these core ones and if, the, if it's three times as long people won't read it so I was like going it's better to just make people aware that this is something that's a problem and that we need to like Keep mm. on their backs about. Um, yeah, start, you know, start, and or further the conversation, yeah, not yeah. tell the whole story. Yeah, 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 totally. yeah. And, that, and that was really, and it really did start a conversation. Mm, I mean, mm. people had only been murmuring about that until that book came out, and then like for then it was something out in the open. Yeah. And, and everyone could actually talk about it. Nothing's really been done, of course. No. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I had lots of ideas again. You know, I even I spent a bit of money developing some software as well and working on some ideas. I put a lot of time into some alternative practices. And that was actually going, it was for a while, it was going to be a, pra- a focus of mine. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, I don't want to spend 10 years of my life, mm. like, battling an organization I don't care about. You know, it's like going, my issue is, is they are holding the money and New Zealand bands deserve that money. And they're it all offshore and it's like going that is the issue I've re- I've put that out there I've, I've I've let people know about it I've done what I can do but it's like I can't spend my life battling this mm. you know I don't want to be negative I don't want to be doing court battles with them I don't want to be going through messes like I have positive things I want to do with my life and I would rather spend that time you know teaching and working on instruments and you know maybe helping people in the tech sector kind of get a leg up rather than just like 
constantly meeting up with Aunt, Aunt Healy every time in Auckland and just like having pointless discussions <laughs> that go nowhere that you know, with ideas he won't listen to you know yeah. um, it's like after a while I just have to yeah you gotta, you gotta pick your battles and I decided that I gotta give that one up for someone else will you teach um, have you ever thought about and now that you've got involved in teaching do you think about teaching photography um or do you yeah. need to teach yourself those skills again first? I, I mean, <laughs> they I, dropped a bit. I mean, my 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 skills are completely irrelevant. I don't even. Yeah, know, I was going to say that. Do people even get taught filming? What does anyone shoot film? I mean, it's done. Only even know. only uh, you know, um, ho- hobbyists again, yeah. eh? Like pure you know purists that are doing it for. Uh, I, mean, I have no interest in digital. I just like it, it's what killed my love of photography in the right. first place. And it wasn't actually until. The and yet, ironically, it's arguably what's enabled just about every other pursuit you've yeah yeah picked up um i mean it wasn't until actually the advent of nick collection software which um google have now bought and provide for free that suddenly there was software available that made digital photos look half decent so mm. basically you know because I, I was i you know i jumped on that boat and i got a shitty I was that, that period of time between 2004 and 2007 is basically just like the worst time for any like movies, any sort of recording or you know yeah, yeah songs like everything was recorded at a low low bit rate, low low quality. It's like everything looks shit yeah that, that period and it's yeah, like we, yeah. we all jumped on the digital bandwagon way too early yeah and so and, I, and unfortunately i was there and so so many of my photos and, and frustratingly it was from my time of touring so it's like my photos from like 2004 to 2007 in the early days of digital photography just suck because i didn't have the money to afford a decent digital camera back then you had yeah. to spend a lot of money to get yeah yeah money. so i you know I, I, and it, it just killed it for me and, I, and then one day years later i looked at you know all my digital photos all my film photos and there wasn't one digital photo that just even stood up to the worst of my film photos and and it just bummed me out and I felt really sad and when Nick Collection brought out the software that with just the click of a filter it was like suddenly oh this does look a little bit more like film it's still not film but it looks a little bit more it's bearable now yeah so but I mean I still I can't I can't take film photo uh, digital photos I just can't do it I, I shoot I shoot video on digital just from a pretty practical perspective but I mean I just can't you know and so but the hassle of shooting film is substantial so I really have to plan it. So I only, I only really take photographs a few times a year now and it's usually on an event. Like I'll do it at my New Year's event. You know, yeah. I'll bring along like four rolls of film and I'll take a whole bunch of photos. Um, you know, on that Chuck and Pink's tour I went on, I shot a whole bunch of Super 8 video. Um, you know, I, I still do projects, but it's certainly not like what I used to do where I'd be out every single weekend yeah, and yeah. pick up rolls of film. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's just too expensive. And so the, what is this year, this this year's New Year's project, what's different about it? Um, so it's, it's my biggest New Year's event I've ever done. And so it, it's actually, it's it's the closest thing to camp. It's people who never really got to go to a camp. It's the closest thing. That, you know, it's like it's like a one-day camp. It's like if I pack down. Right. Well, it's basically, it's like, it's the last day of camp where I always do ramp up kind of things and make things intense. This is like a very intense version of that. It's like, I mean, it's 60-odd bands um, it's it's over two nights in one day, but not on the first night is actually kind of like a low key warm up, and then there's fifty five bands effectively playing I think on the thirty first, and it's wow. just intense. So there's like four fixed stages, and then there's one stage that's in I think six different locations. Um, 
And it's just intense. So I mean, there's things about camp which it's not. So it's like people won't get the chance to see every single artist. Like there's always something about yeah. Yeah. I mean, there will be times you'll think, and also some of the bands are playing in intimate spaces because that's another thing that was important about camp. But at camp, you got to see the intimate space. A band would either play in two intimate spaces or an intimate and a big. So it's like you always got to see everything. Yeah. This one, people are gonna miss bands. But you know, I think um, I think that's. You know, it's it's not camp. It's like a, it's it's not trying to solve every problem. Yeah. Because that was always a problem for me. Is like going, I hate going to festivals, and then yeah, as soon as one stage runs late, all, all that plan, and especially when you're young and you like yeah. you know you, you get your highlighters and you like this stage, this stage, then this stage, and you had that methodical plan. I'd I'd get a laminate. I'd make my own laminate, and I'd have it around my neck, and I'd have like my little day planned out perfectly. Yeah, yeah. But then like I remember one time I got so angry. Right. So this was. Um, big day out when it was I think the first time Mars Volga played and it was the same year that Iggy Pop played so yeah. I left Iggy after like I mean it was it was, a, it was a really fun show and I had to leave after 15 minutes so I'd go see Mars Volga play oh no sorry it was the second time Mars Volga played that's right their first set was inc- the first time was incredible second time they came back it was just crap and but they they were like 45 minutes to late stage and so I could have watched the entire of Iggy's set and then, so I just had to stand the audience, get rid of it. And then they were really flat and lame. And then I was like, so and, the worst. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, this sucks. And I, and but there was because they were playing kind of like nine, ten o'clock. So much good stuff's happening at the festival at that yeah. point. I'm like going, I've just like, I've just, I've missed all the Iggy's set. I've missed whatever was going on in boiler room. I've missed like any small state. I was yeah. just like, you know, waiting for this shit. And, and then, and then that's thrown off everything after. Now and you did your waiting around mid afternoon. All <laughs> yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean that was always something that was so I, even at my festival. So what happened is if one stage ran late, everything else just mm-hmm. shifted. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know, I I, I know I would then I put aside these gaps where it's like every couple of hours I'd put aside a gap of like 15, 20 minutes where nothing happened. So it gave an opportunity to catch back up mm. and then you restart again. So it just means like so basically you don't have to ever look at the time. That's the whole point of camp is you never had to look at your watch. You basically knew that this stage would play and then following that stage it would then split up to these two stages and then it would go to that stage and then it would go back again like that. So you could actually just walk in a line. So if you just want to watch all of this band, wait the finish and then use it and then there's always a five minute gap. So it's like there's five minutes before the next band starts. Yeah. So it's like it doesn't even matter if they run over time, if they do an encore or whatever, we just simply still we push everything back five minutes and then I just catch up later. And it was like for me that's just such a dream idea yeah. of a festival. You yeah. can just relax. You don't have to stress out and look at your watch. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, just really simple things that most festival people are just so into the idea of like you know, they just look at the Glastonbury format or the Woodstock format and they're like, that has to be how festival is, so we will now replicate that for the next hundred years, rather than just like going, nah, nah, why don't you just think about what's broken and just come up with your own ideas? Um, yeah, and the idea of getting to see every single band that plays at a festival, if you want, is pretty clear to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm f- exhausted talking to you and you made me feel fucking lazy about the last two decades of my life like I've done nothing in comparison so you've you've done lots of stuff for me you know we've we've been in touch a lot you know yeah 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 I guess so but uh, but I I feel uh, my productivity levels could have been put to the test in much better ways when I talk to someone like you so that's Thanks very much for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, was, um, it was a pleasure. Is, is there anything that we forgot to? Dude, I mean, there, there will be. A, there, there, we, there, could, there, we could keep going for hours, obviously, but 
people, there'll, be, there'll be a lot of people online who will probably thank me for bumming you out for just a minute. Yeah, you know, exactly. I, I'm, I'm a hero today to, to, to thousands <laughs> of better, better musicians. There you go. <laughs>